0: We are rolling once again. Good
1: morning, brother Kevin. How's life treating you, dude? Good morning. Good morning. Life is treating me wonderful. Lee, is it wonderful or wonderful Lee? I think it's wonderful Lee. I, I think
0: either way works. I, I think wonderfully is is probably more grammatically correct. But I know you guys are getting ready to make a move. You guys have purchased a house, and we were talking about that a little bit before we got going with this. I know you guys are probably really stoked to get that going and get into some new digs.
1: I am super excited about it. We have the, of course, the home office will be here now with our promotional product and marketing business. But then also, I'm able to have my studio here, so I'm excited about that because in my my own, I have a whole room that I can just dedicate to that. So it's really nice. It's really cool. I'm, I'm excited about having my own my own space. And then Bethany has her own room and office too for for the business. So it's really it works out really well. We're we're happy about it.
0: Yeah, that makes things really easy. If you have a space that you can go to for recording or whatever else, like we're doing today with this podcast or, you know, what other material, whatever other material you're going to put out through your website or whatever else, having that space, it's really, really nice. You can go in there, you can set it up, Zen it out, make it how you want it. You can get in that zone a little easier. You know it my wife and I, we have four kids at our house and there's really nowhere there that I can get away and set something like this up except for the little gym we have in the back. And it echoes too bad there. So my studio is at my office in my exam room. So that's where I set up. My exam room gets converted into a studio space, which is eh, it's, it's a little aggravating. I can't just get up and just walk into the studio. I got to drive across town to get here, but that's okay. I mean, it's definitely a first-world problem if I'm complaining about where my recording studio is. I mean, really, if you think about it, <laughs> you know, it puts things in perspective. Um, but yeah, it's it's good times, and I'm happy for you guys. But um, today, we're going to be continuing our discussion of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We're going to be continuing our discussion of Jesus' teachings, and we're going to be um, passing the baton from where we were last week. We're going to be picking up where we left off. Last week, we started getting into Jesus' teachings. We started talking about um, what Jesus said regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19. We also just briefly touched on what Jesus said in Mark and how that relates to those. And what we discussed last week was the guilty party. We were talking about in Jesus's teachings, you have the guilty party represented. And if you have someone who is guilty of something, well, then... If there's someone in that's involved with that process, there's also a victim. And that victim is going to be the source of who we discuss today. But as a, as a quick recap, we're going to be talking about those who are guilty in Jesus's teachings. The week before, we talked about contextualizing Jesus's teachings. And if you haven't listened to anything else, listen to that podcast where we contextualize what Jesus has to say. And in order to really get that, you really need to listen to the first two episodes we did on marriage, divorce, and remarriage in the Old Testament, because that provides the framework for Jesus's teachings. Contextualizing Jesus provides the framework for what he says about the guilty and what we'll discuss today about the innocent.
1: Well, and Lee, let me interject something here, because a lot of people, when they talk about really any biblical subject, but especially marriage, divorce, and remarriage, people just want to get along with it. They just want to get to the point. They They want to know, are they okay? Are they not okay? And they want to jump right to that and you really can't do that with such an important topic. I mean, I guess technically you can, but you're not doing it justice because we live in a world that wants everything as quick as possible. We we just we just want we we want to google search something real quick. We just want an answer. We just want to be told what's right or wrong. We don't want to spend the intellectual energy and the time it takes to really develop our own faith and our own convictions. And so this is a topic where I believe I don't honestly know of any biblical topic that affects more people in their life than this topic here. I really don't. I don't know of a single topic. And so why not spend several hours studying this topic to make sure that we're coming to the right conclusion instead of just reading a couple of articles that perhaps already agree with our preconceived idea are that we're just going to listen to what the preacher tells us and we accept that. This is something we need to spend time in studying. We have the resources today. We need to spend the time it takes to really study this topic. And that's what we're trying to do by taking our time and and going through this. I've already had people ask me some questions because they've only listened to one episode, and I'll, and I'll point them back to another episode, and they go, well, I don't have time for that. Well, if you don't have time for that, it's hard for me to have time to answer your question <laughs> because yeah. we're, we're already spending the time so that people can have this material out there. And so it's important for if, for those who are genuinely interested to study this topic, we're putting we're spending the time we're taking the the energy and the hours to put this together. And so if someone does have a question, of course, I told them we could also answer it in the question answer series as well. But the point is, is that people need to spend time in this subject. It's very important to understand the context and not just to rush into it, but to look at this topic as in-depth as possible because it does affect so many people personally.
0: Well, contextualization is so important with everything we look at, especially something as heavy as marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I mean, anytime you look at the scriptures, we need to contextualize what the scriptures teach. I mean, we can look at what the Bible says. And as you said in a previous podcast, as I have said in a previous podcast, we, of course, take seriously what the Bible says, but we are also trying to decipher what the Bible means. Because... Just because the Bible says something doesn't mean that's what the Bible means. And the example that you and I always go back to, you know, Jesus said, if your right hand caused you to sin, cut it off. That's what the Bible says, but that's not what the Bible means. You know, if you take a super strict literalist reading, we're going to have a lot of Christians walking around out there without an eye eye or without an arm. I mean, you're going to start thinking the world's flat with a hard dome over it, if that's the case. And, you know, that's something that we'll get into whenever we get into origins, but it's, it's one of those things contextualization is important, and that's why we've spent the time doing this. So when we contextualize Jesus, we look at him as a first century Near Eastern Jewish man who lived in the region in which he lived. He was very much a product of his culture. He was very much a Jewish man who engaged in Jewish activities. He lived and walked on this earth and breathed on this earth just as you and I do. He was a product of his culture, just like you are, just like I am. He was a product of his time, just like you are and just like I am. But one thing he had on us is not only was he fully human and a fully contextual ancient Jew, he also was and is the divine son of God. He is and was that second person in the Godhead. And. That's one edge Jesus has on you and me that you know you and I will never have. But in that case, we can't ignore the humanity of Jesus, that he lived in that region. We also recognize that Jesus was commenting on different debates that were transpiring, and we spent a lot of time going into that. So listen to those podcasts. When Jesus gets into discussing this hillelite shamite debate, or Shamite debate, however you want to say it, he's talking about any cause divorce that's the context of his discussion he is asked is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause he's not asking is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife his answer would have been well yeah it is lawful and i mean it was a foregone conclusion that was lawful but the question was for any cause and then they get into a discussion jesus actually dodges the question and then he goes back to talking about marriage as it was intended to be from the very beginning And then he gets into answering their question. He says, well, then why did Moses command us to give a divorce certificate there in Matthew 19? And Jesus said, or to send her out. And Jesus said, well, Moses allowed you to do it because of the hardness of your hearts. And in that, he gets into what exactly he's driving home. The idea is that if you are guilty or if you are in a marriage and you treacherously divorce your wife, then you are guilty of committing adultery on her. If we take Mark's account where it speaks of a woman divorcing her husband, if you take a woman who treacherously divorces her husband, divorces for no cause, then she is committing adultery on her husband. Whenever you divorce someone for a treacherous cause in order to marry someone else, not only is the person doing the divorcing guilty, but the person to whom they are going, they're leaving spouse, their spouse behind to go to this new person, that new person who we call the home wrecker, they are guilty of adultery as well. Those are the guilty parties in this. They are the ones who are guilty. And we also enumerated and elucidated what Jesus said there in um, the book of Mark and how that ties into Matthew 5. That whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And that'll play into what we talk about today with the with the innocent party. But that idea is is he's speaking of a woman who does the same thing a man does. That's a just a real quick rambling summary of what our last episode covered. If you haven't listened to it, oh, excuse me. If you haven't listened to it, you need to go back and listen to that episode. Listen to everything we've done so far if you want a good grasp on it. Don't just try to microwave this into some bullet points or just some talking points. It's incredibly difficult to do that. You're doing yourself a disservice. You're not, doing, um, you're not doing justice to the material. Like Kevin said, this is an incredibly important topic. It affects so many people and has ripple effects that go far and wide. And if we're going to be good students about this, we need to do our due diligence so that we have a full grasp of the context and on what the Bible means when it says what it says on this subject.
1: That's right. And today we're going to get into the idea of who the the innocent are within the marital teachings of Jesus, because this is important to understand. And we talked a little bit about Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, where Jesus continues when he's talking about marriage, divorce, or remarriage. And he says that whoever marries a woman who's been divorced commits adultery. Now, let's begin by looking at this context, and I want us to go ahead and just make this proposition right here. A man or woman who's been put away by their spouse unlawfully are not guilty, and they are not even under consideration in the marital teachings of Jesus. So I want to say that one more time. A man or a woman who's been put away, who's been divorced by their spouses unlawfully, meaning that They didn't do anything worthy to be divorced. They didn't do anything worthy to be put away. They didn't commit adultery. There's been no abandonment, neglect, or anything like that, that their spouse, who is hard-hearted, divorced them for just whatever reason they wanted to. That individual, whether it be the man or the woman, they are not even under consideration in the marital teachings of Jesus. Now, this is probably going to be new to a lot of people, perhaps, listening to this, because before, I know for myself, I always read the innocent person into the marital teachings of Jesus, even the one who was unlawfully divorced by their spouse. And we see that in Matthew chapter five. And so I want to read this. And then Lee and I are just going to take a little bit of time to discuss this here. So Matthew chapter five, beginning in verse 31, it says, whoever divorces his wife, or well, let me back up. Jesus said, it has been said to you, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, we've already really hashed most of that out last week. So if you didn't listen to last week's episode, go back and listen to to that first, where we discuss who the guilty are. But the latter part, is where most people get the idea that even those who have been divorced even against their own will even when they didn't do anything wrong that they cannot remarry. And this is where they get that idea is the latter part of Matthew 5:32 where Jesus says whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now most people read Matthew 5:31-32 as a continuous statement. So they believe that this divorced woman is the woman who was divorced by her husband unlawfully. We discussed last week, and we got into the Greek a little bit, how that's not the case. In fact, in the Greek, the Greek does not demand that this woman be the same woman. Now, the Greek also doesn't demand who this woman has to be, but in the Greek, this woman is not attached to that same situation that Jesus just talked about. Yeah, so, we
0: have two separate clauses there.
1: Yes, and that's that's hard sometimes to see, especially in the English when we're just reading this as continuous statements, but the point is is Jesus just makes a statement, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the question is, is Jesus Jesus can be saying one or two things. Well, I guess really he could be saying several things. So let's let's think about this. First of all, Jesus can literally be saying here and he, he could be meaning whoever marries a woman who has ever been divorced for whatever reason commits adultery. That's what he could be saying. Now, even most of our own brethren will acknowledge that that's not what Jesus means because they would say, well, if a woman divorces her husband for fornication, then that divorced woman can remarry. So most of our own brethren will even admit, no, Jesus cannot be saying that this is a straightforward understanding of any woman who's ever been divorced for any reason, because if that's the case, then a woman who divorced her husband for fornication also could not remarry, which by the way, there are some people who believe that. And guess what? We're going to talk about that today. Yes, (laughs) we are. In in the exception clause, some alternate understandings of the exception clause. We'll get into that later. But here's the point. Most people look at this and understand this should not be taken straight forward, that there is at least some qualification within this, that Jesus is not saying, if, you've, if a woman has ever been divorced for any reason, she can never, ever, ever remarry. Because even in most of our own brethren will say, if a woman divorced her husband for, for his fornication, then she can remarry. Okay, well, then clearly Jesus cannot be speaking universally here about all divorced women. Well, let's just take that a step further. Who then is Jesus talking about? Well, some would say, well, Jesus is talking about a woman who has been unlawfully divorced by her husband. She didn't do anything wrong. He did. But now she's in a position because of her husband or ex-husband, she can no longer remarry because of the actions of her ex-husband, because he divorced her unlawfully. And unfortunately, now she's not able to remarry. Now, here's why I don't believe that's the case. First of all, we do, once again, we dealt with this last week, but first of all, I believe this woman is not just any divorced woman. I believe this is a woman who unlawfully divorces her husband. Why do I believe that? Well, because if you look at Mark chapter 10, verse 12, Jesus specifically talks about the woman who divorces her husband unlawfully. So it would make sense that when Jesus is condemning a divorced woman. He's not condemning a woman because her hard-hearted husband divorced her. He's condemning her because she's the one who did the unlawful divorcing. And we see that once again in Mark chapter 10, verse 12. So if we believe Jesus is teaching the same thing on marriage and divorce in all the accounts, then we should understand that whoever is the one who marries the woman is the the divorced woman is the one who actually did the unlawful divorcing.
0: Well, and I'd like to drill that down just a bit more because we we reference those scriptures. I think it'd be important to read this scripture here in Mark chapter ten, and verse twelve. If that's okay,
1: yeah, sure, um, go ahead
0: and get that. So here is what Jesus is saying in Mark's account. In Mark chapter ten, we see the uh, the same discussion going on in Mark's account as what we see going on in Matthew nineteen, and Jesus says. Um, well, the Pharisees asked him in verse two, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And then Jesus replies and says, well, what did Moses command you? And then they said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce. And then Jesus answers, well, with the hardness of your hearts, that was the case. So what we see here is we see the same uh, conversation taking place, but it's a different account of that conversation. It's the same thing under consideration. Now, whenever we get down to verse 11, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, some things that I think we need to note here. Some people say, well, there's no exception clause listed there. Jesus is just saying, if you divorce and marry another, you commit adultery. So the act of divorcing and marrying another is the commission of adultery. Well, as we have already established very well in the last few episodes. Jesus' statements must be understood as qualified and contextual. They are not always straightforward and universal. This is the same conversation we see in Matthew where Jesus is talking about a specific thing, the hill of any cause divorce. That is the contextual framework that we're getting at here. We can't just look at Mark's account and say, well, see here, this means that you can just divorce, you know, anyone that divorces for any reason marries another. Well, that's adultery. No, it isn't. That divorces, eh, see what I did there? It's a pun. That divorces (laughs) the text from its context. And if we take that approach, we're coming to it with a pretext. We're coming to it with a presupposition. But if we recognize that that context of this Hillelite discussion of any cause divorce and treacherous divorce is what Jesus has in mind in Matthew then that is the exact same thing that Jesus has in mind in Mark. With that being the case, we see then the idea that if we could supply it this way, whoever divorces his wife treacherously to marry another commits adultery against her. He's committing adultery against his spouse. If a woman divorces her husband and marries another, if a woman divorces her husband treacherously for no cause, She's committing adultery in that we see the fullness of that picture. And to me, it's plain. Two things become plain here. Jesus is referring to the different woman. I think that this makes a really strong case for that clause in Matthew 5, being a different person for those being two independent clauses referring to two different people. And that woman there that Jesus refers to in Matthew 5, 32 is this woman here in Mark 10. So we see that elucidated there. I think that's to me, that makes the case really, really
1: more plain when we consider the context. What makes it difficult and rightfully so is when you look at Matthew 5, 31, and 32, and you just listen to what we said, you may scratch your head and go, huh? <laughs> How are you getting that out of Matthew 5, 31, and 32? And I remember when I was first studying through all the different positions and I contacted William Luck personally. And, uh, of course he, he holds this position that we're espousing and, and there are many different Bible students and scholars who do as well. And when I contacted him, because he was, well, he's one of the few who will converse with you because most are either too busy or they're dead. But he, uh, <laughs> he, I, I asked him, I said, how do you get that out of Matthew five thirty one and 32? And I said, because that just seems like a lot of hermeneutical gymnastics. And, and I'll be honest, it does. It really does. If, if what we just said sounds a bit confusing, I admit when I first heard this, there was because I had been trained to read Matthew 5, 31 and 32 a certain way. And now I'm being told that I need to read it and understand it a different way. So here's what really connected the dots for me to make that conclusion seem legitimate to make that conclusion seem not just more palatable, but actually authentic. And here's why. If Jesus was condemning the remarriage of either a woman or man who was unlawfully put away by their hard-hearted spouse without a lawful reason, then this would mean that Jesus was abolishing a moral law, which is the very thing he said he wasn't going to do in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Now, not only would this have Jesus abolishing a moral law, but this would have Jesus abolishing the very moral laws established to protect the innocent from their hard-hearted spouses that we saw in Deuteronomy 24 and Exodus chapter 21. Now, think about this for a moment. You have these laws that God put in place so that those who would be divorced by their spouses— for no justifiable reason, could be free and could remarry. That's the, that was the whole reason why those laws were even put in place by God to begin with. So I want you to think about something for a moment. Now, if we're saying that Jesus is condemning the remarriage of a victim, we are having to say not only is Jesus teaching a new law, And not only is Jesus abolishing and retracting the moral laws that were put in place to protect the innocent, but that he is abolishing these laws, and he is no longer allowing the innocent to be protected anymore. That's a huge pill to swallow, and one I had never even considered that that is what I am teaching without even realizing that is what I used to teach. I was actually saying, and that's what anybody is saying, if you believe that Jesus is saying anybody who marries a victim of a divorce, because they are now divorced, commits adultery, and that person can no longer remarry, simply because of their spouse's hard heart, you are actually saying that Jesus is retracting the moral laws put in place to protect the innocent here. What sense, let's honestly ask ourselves, what good sense does that make?
0: Well I think that w- that entire prospect that you just laid out is lost on us because in our day and time if a man divorces a woman a woman can go out and have a career and she can make as much or more money in some cases than what a man can. You know a woman can go out she can see to her own needs, she can pay the bills, she can put food on the table. She can live her life. And that's not to say that women are ultimately on equal footing with men. There are still some social injustices that are proclaimed against a lot of women. But we don't look at it in those ways. Whenever Whenever we look at these teachings of Jesus, and we ignore that context of the protective quality of remarriage, because remarriage, women couldn't just go to... I mean, back in that day, if you were divorced on, If your husband puts you away treacherously and you're a woman, you can't just go to college and learn a new career. You can't go and learn a new trade. If women were forbidden to remarry, then they would be at the mercy of society. They may try to go back and live with their parents. They may try to go back and live with their fathers. And most of the time they would take these um, divorced women back into their homes. But what if their parents were dead? What if they had moved to a faraway place or a faraway location away from their family? A woman's recourse, a lot of times, the only recourse she would have if she wasn't allowed to remarry would be prostitution. And I've, I don't think anyone's going to argue that that's a a valid, you know, option for any woman whatsoever. You know, to have to go into prostitution, really. So you're going to tell me that Jesus is pulling the rug out from under these women? He's saying the law of Moses established a measure of fairness that protects you from hard heartedness. It allows you to remarry so that you can have your needs looked after. But I'm not going to let that happen anymore. You see, what I'm actually saying is, and what I actually think is a better plan and what God really wants is he wants you to stay married forever. But if you get divorced for any reason whatsoever, you're forbidden to ever remarry again. That in effect would be a death sentence for any woman who was unable to remarry in that day and time. And we forget that because of the modern lens and the modern era in which we live where women are can largely function independently of men.
1: Yep, and that is such a powerful point because, once again, not only would this have Jesus abolishing a moral law, but this would have Jesus abolishing the very moral laws established to protect the innocent from their hard-hearted spouses. And I cannot emphasize that enough. Now, it wasn't Jesus even said,
0: I've not come to destroy the law. I'm not here to destroy the law. I'm not laying out any new laws in Matthew 5 and 17. He says he's not going to do that. But we say, "Oh no, Jesus! That's actually what you're doing." No, you see, it, this really is a new law here. Jesus said, "No, no, it isn't."
1: Well, and there's a lot of there's a lot of other points to think about with this idea too. That if Jesus is saying that the the innocent, the person who was hard heartedly put away by their spouse, cannot remarry, if that's who Jesus is talking about in Matthew five thirty two, which once again I do not believe that's who he's talking about, but if it is. We have some other principles at play too. For example, in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, the Bible says that Jesus came to set the captive free and to free the oppressed. And we also see in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, that Jesus taught that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Now, if Jesus was abolishing the protective laws of treacherously divorced women, then Jesus would be doing the very opposite of setting the captive free. Because Jesus is not just talking about spiritually or or physically. He's talking about spiritually here. he's, He's talking in a spiritual sense how he's come to set the captive free. Now think about this for a moment. Jesus would not be setting the captive or the oppressed free if he was abolishing these moral laws. He would actually be making the oppressed even more spiritually oppressed than they were before. And here's why. This would mean that the treacherously divorced women not only would have more physically uh, oppressed issues, as Lee pointed out, but spiritually oppressed. Because that's really what Jesus is talking about anyway, about the oppression. He's talking about spiritually oppressed. What he's saying is, is that I've come to free people who are spiritually oppressed. But if he is abolishing this moral law, then now a woman is punished because of the sins of her husband and can never remarry because of the sins of her hard-hearted husband. And now she is put in a position, both physically, but more importantly, spiritually, that she now has to live in that is much more oppressive than under the Old Testament law. Now, let me ask you this. What law would you rather live under? A law that said, I have put these specific policies and instructions in place to protect you from your hard-hearted husband, that if he does divorce you without cause, then you're, you are protected and now you can move forward in in a new redeemed life with someone else. Or, hey, guess what? Now, if your husband's a jerk, the only difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is, sorry, you can't remarry anymore and no longer are your rights going to be protected. Now, you've got to remain single the rest of your life because of your hard-hearted husband. This would make treacherously divorced women not only more physically oppressed, but spiritually oppressed, because now they're living in a completely different state. They don't have the same freedom. They don't have the same right. And there is in no sense that anyone could call that a better covenant. And there is no way that someone could call that a better law. There's no way that someone could say that that's setting the captive and the oppressed free. And there's no way that someone could say say that that yoke is easy and that burden is light. Give me the old law any day if that's the case. Let's go back to the
0: sacrifices, man. Let's go back to the to the Feast of Tabernacles and Weeks and Booths and all that stuff. Let's go back to all of those things. Let's go back to that Sabbath rest because, like, I mean, that is an incredibly hard point to ignore. If Jesus came to set the captive free and if his yoke is easy and his burden is light, well, now he's going to be burdening you even more. It It, it boggles the mind. That we go there, but a lot of times we go there because it's an inherited belief. We go there and we believe that about it. The traditional view is what I mean, because that's the perspective we've inherited. What I can't help but think about while you're enumerating all of those points is it seems like that this would provide an even greater opportunity to weaponize divorce for those that are hard hearted because Jesus's entire message is against those who are hard hearted because of the hardness of your hearts. God allowed this, and we talked about Malachi too when we talked about hard-hearted divorce being the divorce God hates. This seems to me like it would weaponize divorce even more because if you have a hard-hearted husband and if what Jesus is actually teaching means that a woman can't remarry, if I'm a hard-hearted husband and I'm just a cruel, sadistic sociopath, I'm going to be sitting here thinking, you know what? This woman over here looks pretty good. My wife, who's been nothing but good to me. I'm just going to make her suffer. If I divorce her to go and marry this woman over here, this wife that I have now, she'll never be able to marry again. Oh, I'm going to do that to her. I'm just going (laughs) to, I'm just going to really put it to her this time. Well, I want you to,
1: Oh, go ahead.
0: It just, it weaponizes divorce even more. And, you know, and I'm reminded of this idea: we're punishing someone who's innocent. We're punishing someone who has no say in the matter. Sometimes a woman may not want to divorce her husband, but her husband divorces her for whatever reason. She has no say in the matter, and we're going to say that she's punished because of the actions of someone else. I mean, we remember what the prophet Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 18: the soul who sins shall die. You know, it, it'd be like if I shot someone and Kim went to prison for it. That makes no sense. That's not just. That's not just at all. But I know I've heard some of my own brethren say, well, it seems like in this instance, God isn't really interested in fairness at all. He's interested in the sanctity of marriage and preserving that. He's not interested in fairness. And I'm sitting here thinking, are you serious? I mean, how can we say that God is a just God? How can we say that our God is a God of justice and mercy if we're going to say in the second breath that He's not interested in fairness. I mean, you can't have that both ways. Either God is a just God who is a merciful God and a gracious God and a loving God, which indicates and infers that he's going to be interested in fairness, or God isn't interested in fairness. You can't talk out of both sides of your neck and have it both ways. It doesn't make any
1: sense. Well, you brought up a good point because I keep asking, why would Jesus negate the laws put in place to protect innocent women only to give the hard-hearted man further power by putting divorced women in an even more vulnerable position where they can never remarry. Once again, this isn't setting the, the, the captive free. This is making the captive even more captive, not only physically, but spiritually. This would actually, Lee, if this conclusion is correct, that Jesus is, is giving a new law and he's retracting the moral law and he's saying that now even the innocent women those who've been divorced by their hard-hearted spouses have to remain single the rest of their lives this would be giving a new punishment to innocent women while only further empowering the sins of treacherous men and you brought this up before if i'm a hard-hearted man uh, if i'm a hard-hearted man do you think that i really care about consequences for my sin? No, I don't care. I'm going to keep living the way I want to live. So now the only difference between the old law and the new law is that under the Old Testament, the women were protected, the innocent were protected, and now under the New Covenant, the innocent are no longer protected. If that is the summary of what we think Jesus is teaching, if that doesn't cause you to reconsider your position, I honestly don't know what would, because this conclusion only benefits The hard-hearted husband, think about this for a moment, Lee. Not only does this conclusion benefit the hard-hearted husband, it punishes the innocent woman, and here's why. Because now, not only can the innocent woman no longer have her rights protected, she no longer can remarry, she no longer can go and and have a good life because of her her hard-hearted husband divorced her, now, not only can we say that that woman does not have that freedom And that woman no longer has that protective law to help her, to protect her. But this conclusion also benefits the hard-hearted man because this means that the husband no longer has to even financially provide for her living rights. And now she can't even go and marry someone else. So see, before under the law, at least if a man could not provide for the rights of the woman, she could go free married to another, but now are we concluding that Jesus is stripping these away? He's stripping the protective law of Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, the divorce certificate. He's stripping the protective law of, of Exodus chapter 21, verse 10. We're saying he's stripping those things away. Why would he do that? And what would that have to do with anything when it comes to trying to talk about the hard hearts of husbands? This would make Jesus, now think about this, This is powerful, Lee. What I'm about to say, man, this right here really helped me see things. Jesus is calling the Pharisees hard-hearted for divorcing their spouses. Is that correct?
0: Yes. Yes, absolutely.
1: I'm going to ask you a few questions just so the audience can follow along. So Jesus is saying, you scribes and Pharisees are hard-hearted because you are divorcing your spouses for no reason whatsoever. Correct. All right. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So Jesus is then saying there was a law put in place to protect the innocent that when you, because of your hard hearts, divorce them, they would have protection to be able to move on. Is that correct? Contextually, yes. Yeah, that's, that's what Deuteronomy 24 taught. That's what Exodus 21 taught. And they're even saying, why did Moses command us to divorce? And Jesus said, Moses didn't command you to divorce. Moses commanded that you give a divorce certificate when you do divorce. That's how concerned God was with protecting the innocent. And he's saying that they are being hard-hearted. Why? Because they were divorcing them and they were putting these innocent out on the street without any way to provide for themselves and without any way of having a future. And God calls them hard-hearted for that. So God said, because of that, I'm making sure that you have a divorce certificate. Right? Correct. Yes. Yes. So would this not make God, would this not make Jesus more hard-hearted than the Pharisees?
0: I think that's the only conclusion you can really come to. If Jesus is, in fact, prohibiting the woman who is divorced on, or the man that's divorced on, if he is prohibiting who we refer to as the innocent party from remarrying, that's really the only conclusion that you can come to. It really is. Jesus the- is
1: put. Jesus is putting them in a much worse position than the Pharisees put them in, because at least— The scribes and Pharisees were giving divorce certificates that would allow them to be able to have a future. Now Jesus is saying, hey, guess what? You thought you were innocent? Yeah, you're innocent. But now my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'm going to take away your protective laws.
0: (laughs) Sorry about you. Sorry about you. Because guys, you see, God isn't interested in in fairness. He's interested in the sanctity of marriage. So sorry, we're going to make it so difficult. Well, this is so impalatable. Well, then it's better to never marry at all, isn't it?
1: Well, and so, and, and I'm
0: speaking just kind of tongue- in cheek there, but still, anyway, yeah. we talked about that a lot last time. anyway, insert, go ahead.
1: insert sarcasm here, but the point is <laughs> is that this is why I believe there is no way, no way that Jesus could be discussing the the innocent in matthew five thirty two I don't believe that that divorced woman is talking about a woman who was divorced by her hard-hearted husband. I believe that divorced woman is a woman who had the hard heart and who divorced her husband, as we see in Mark chapter 10, verse 11 and 12. So the conclusion is that those who were divorced by their spouses without a lawful or moral reason against them are not even under consideration in the context and specific situation of the marital teachings of Jesus, much less are they considered guilty. So I don't even believe they're being discussed. That's not even the point of Jesus. Why in the world would Jesus be talking about the innocent in this situation? Jesus is talking about those who are taking the law and they are twisting it to justify their hard hearts. That's who Jesus is talking about. Jesus isn't interested in condemning the, guilt, in condemning the innocent. He, he's not talking about those who are sinned against. He's not talking about the innocent, much less retracting the protective laws put in place to protect the innocent. So I don't even believe they're under consideration. So when someone says, well, if if my spouse has divorced me and I did nothing morally, I did nothing wrong, I wanted the marriage, but he didn't. And so he divorced me for no good reason, for any reason, just for whatever reason. Then what? Then what do I have to do? Well, my answer, my my response to you is Jesus doesn't even talk about that. That's not even even in the context. So Jesus does not even address that that specific situation. In fact, the answer would be if you have a divorce certificate, guess what? You can remarry because that's the only way that any of the Jews could have ever understood that. And we're going to talk about that a lot more with Paul next uh, next week. But the point is, is that Jesus is not even dealing with that particular situation. Jesus is concerned with discussing those who were hardheartedly divorcing their spouses and those those complicit parties who were a part of that adulterous process.
0: Yeah, you can summarize it, it, it just like this. Jesus is talking about the guilty and who's guilty and what they've done. He never touches on the innocent. He never touches on the those only, who are completely innocent here.
1: The only the only time that I believe the innocent are brought up is when it talks about them being sinned against. It, it's it's Jesus yeah, is yeah. victimizing the innocent. He's not condemning them. He's victimizing them. In fact, in Matthew 5, 31, it says, you've committed adultery against your spouse already when you unlawfully divorced them. So now we're going to say because... Adultery was committed against you because a sin was 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 taken against you. Now you're punished for that for your spouse's sin. It and, makes and,
0: no sense.
1: No, it makes it, no it, sense. That, that in of itself doesn't even make sense. But when you combine that with the Jewish law that protected the innocent, then you would have to say Jesus is retracting, he is retracting those protective laws. And at the same time, he is now saying that you are guilty because of what your spouse did to you. You are now punished because of your spouse's sin. This is this is such a—and by the way, I believed this for years. So I'm not pointing the finger saying that anybody— Oh, brother, I did too. Or, Yeah, I mean, this was something that I truly believed. But when I studied this within context— That this just made so much more sense that that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus in Matthew 5.32 is discussing a hard-hearted woman who divorced her husband, not just a woman who happens to be divorced. That's not the context of Matthew 5.32, especially when you parallel it with the other marital teachings of Jesus, specifically in Mark chapter 10.
0: Well, the next thing that we're about to discuss is the exception clause. And in order to really ascertain the context of the exception clause, we need to understand the context of who's guilty and who's innocent and how does Jesus touch on them and how does Jesus deal with all that? Because the way we have traditionally approached the exception clause is tied in and interwoven into our interpretation of who's guilty and what the innocent does and who's the innocent party and all those other things. So whenever we consider who the guilty really are and what it is they're guilty of, and we consider who the innocent are and that they're really not touched on other than for Jesus to label them as a victim in the process, then the exception clause takes on a whole new, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It takes on a whole new timber. It, 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 its function essentially changes. Because the exception clause in the traditional sense that if you get a divorce for any reason other than adultery, fornication, sexual immorality, if you get a divorce for any reason other than that, then you cannot remarry. But if that is the case, well, then that's the exception given that allows one to remarry. That is the contextual function of the exception clause with the traditional interpretation that you held to for a long time, that I held to for a long time.
1: Well, and let me but, let me interject this real quick, because typically the only person who could ever remarry in my former belief was the one who was active, the one that was actively divorcing. If ever you were divorced against, you, you could not have ever remarried, and basically because of Matthew 5.32, what we just discussed. And yeah. so the only time that someone that I believed anybody could ever remarry is if they were the one who actively did the divorcing because of their spouse's sexual infidelity, because their spouse had sex with someone else. And that is, of course, the position I took for years. That is the reasoning behind what why I divorced, because my spouse... You know, she committed adultery, and she had a relationship, an ongoing relationship with with someone else, and wasn't willing to change. And I was so legalistic that I believe not only did I have to be the one to divorce, but I had to have four fornication on my divorce certificate to show that that is why I did the divorcing. And so it's this idea that my belief, and I know your belief too, <clears throat> previously to to our change was that. The only people who could ever remarry, the only people who were ever truly innocent, the only true innocent people were the ones who actively divorced their spouse because their spouse had sex with someone else. That would be the only moral grounds to divorce someone. And when I started studying this in depth, I realized that there is a a group of people out there some in scholarship and I will reference some of those uh, individuals here as we as we talk about it and then some who just follow that scholarship who believe that the exception clause is actually not an exception clause at all they do believe it does it, it there is an exception but it's not to be able to divorce your spouse who you're married to and gives you allowance to remarry another. They don't. Be, there's a group out there who does not believe that, and this may be new to a lot of people. Some people call this the no exception view, where yeah. there is absolutely no reason to lawfully divorce your spouse and marry another under any conditions. And so let's let's talk about this a little bit,
0: and well, we,
1: and talk about this idea of of the no exception because I've I've been talking about how there are people out there who believe this. And I would say probably, honestly, a lot of our audience probably does not believe this. I don't know if any of our audience has probably believes in the no exception, maybe a few. But we do want to discuss this because, I, I, number one, a lot of smart people believe this. And I think when a lot of smart people believe something, we should at least listen to why they believe it. Whether we accept it or not is a different story. But we do need to be willing to listen to what people have to say. And so let's let's just discuss this idea of the, the no exception position or whatever, yeah. Or position. Yeah.
0: Well, it, it, to me, it's one of the things we're we're getting into now is we're getting into this idea of the exception or no exception or, or whatever else. And the reason for this is, is whenever you have that traditional framework of the exception itself and the way that we have approached it and most of us approach it, that's one way of looking at it. And it requires the context under which this position is built, which we've just spent what five six episodes dismantling and you know reorienting ourselves to the appropriate scriptural context behind this idea so in order to drill down the exception we're not just looking at how we used to view the exception we're looking at how those more strict than even we were viewed this and I know one of the reasons why the no exception position exists is because there are some people who believe that the exception clause was an interpolation. That And what an interpolation is, is it's something that was added to the text at a later date. It was something that didn't originally exist in Matthew's text. That's one of the more common arguments I've heard when I've talked to no exception brethren, is that the, no, is that the exception doesn't even exist. You don't see it in Mark's account. You don't see it in Luke's account. And it was only added in Matthew's account later because Matthew was written later. So it was added there, and it's not even originally in the text. So we can just discard it because it wasn't there. That's one of the reasons why people hold to that idea.
1: Well, and this argument is saying that it's not actually textually legitimate. So there are, there are people out there who say the phrase itself, except it be for fornication, should not even be in the Bible. They, they believed that that was, as Lee pointed out, added later. There, some, there was maybe a scribe. There was maybe a, a Jew who had this added later because they thought that Jesus' teaching was too difficult. And so they added this exception later and that this isn't something that Jesus ever said. This isn't something that anyone ever believed during that time, but that this was something that came later. And that's a pretty... That's, That's a, a pretty hippie move. That's when, a bold move, Cotton. And now I will say this, there are times in the Bible where there are certain passages that are under scrutiny as to whether they are textually legitimate. For example, the woman caught in adultery in John chapter eight, you'll probably notice if you've ever read that passage or studied it, that there may be a, even a footnote in your Bible that says that there's some manuscripts that don't include this, and there's some question as to whether or not this should even be in the Bible or in the in the Gospel of John. Others believe it maybe should be in the Gospel of Luke, and there's a lot of textual and and just, I guess you could say, reason to believe that, at least reason to doubt. Most people still believe the story is probably true, but whether you believe that or not, we've already identified that there's some question about that right that's already been identified yeah. there's a lot of scholars who say well look when we look at the text there's some manuscripts that have it there there's some that don't and when you start doing some 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 textual study of that and when you start looking at the different manuscripts and you can understand okay well that makes sense but when we come, when it comes to the exception clause my first question when i first heard this because I, when i divorced my my first wife for for adultery for her fornication I was uh, actually approached by a few folks who said, well, I, we don't even think you had a right to do that. And this argument was was posed to me. They said, well, we don't even think that this is textually legitimate. And I said, okay, well, I, let me study. Let me see what you have. So I ended up doing study on this to see, first of all, is, is this even textually legitimate? Should this even be in the Bible? And this is what I found. So Carl Laney, he says, while some would argue that these exception clauses are not part of the genuine teaching of Jesus— but represent either an adaptation by Matthew or an interpolation by the early church, there are no sound textual arguments against the genuineness of the clauses. And resting on Bruce Metzger's A Textual Commentary on the Greek New Testament, Laney also notes the simple fact that there are no, and listen to this, there are no Greek manuscripts that omit the exception clauses. Not a single one so all the copies of the copies of the copies that we have all the greek manuscripts that deal with matthew 531 and 32 and matthew 199 not a single one omit the exception clause but even more so than that, early church fathers, even in the second and third centuries, reference the exception clause in their writings when quoting the scriptures. We see this from Clement of Alexandria, Theopolis of Antioch, lactanius. there's there's a handful when they're talking about the marital teachings of Jesus. they talk about the exception clause. They quote the exception clause. And so, I was so concerned about this seriously, because I want to make sure that, you know, I had a right to remarry. (laughs) I mean, if, if I didn't, I don't don't need to, if this is not true, if this exception clause is not textually legitimate, then I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to be lost over this. And so, so I actually contacted Dr. Daniel Wallace, who is a textual expert to find out more information about these texts. Now, Just to give you a little bit of background, Dr. Wallace is definitely a conservative scholar, and he's one of the field's leading scholars in textual criticism. And he is a professor of New Testament studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's also founder and executive director of the Center for the Study of the New Testament Manuscripts. In other words, he's smart. He knows his stuff. He's he's a smart man, right? You know, so he's yeah. So I asked Dr. Wallace, seriously, I contacted him personally and I asked him about the authenticity of Matthew 532 and Matthew 199. And here's what he said in this email to me, and I have this documented. He said, quote, Kevin, the critical text of the Greek New Testament do not list any variants whatsoever for the exception clause in Matthew 532. However, Matthew nineteen nine is significantly different. There are eight variants there and some with some good manuscript testimony. However, not one of them changes the meanings, and there are no variants that ever omit the exception clause in either verse in any and all of the manuscripts. Thus, I take the exception clause in both places to be authentic. The oldest manuscript we have for those portions of Scripture are Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, both 4th century manuscripts. And yes, Matthew was most likely the most circulated gospel, at least in the 2nd century, though John was especially popular in Gnostic circles. So here's the point. Lee, do we have any reason at all to reject the textual authenticity of the exception clause?
0: No, there's not any evidence that exists, at least none that's been found yet. And that would probably be the response that you get. from somebody. Well, just because we haven't found the evidence yet doesn't mean the evidence isn't there. And what that is, is that's grasping at straws to hold on to a presupposition or to hold on to an argument that has since been you know, proven to be inaccurate. There, there's no evidence for it. But to me, that's still, there's still the question, why don't Mark and Luke's gospel accounts contain that exception clause? So to me, that's a better question. I mean, you can make the argument for interpolation or whatever else. That's a real weak argument to make. But the fact still remains, you really don't see an exception clause elucidated in Mark's account. You don't really see the exception clause elucidated in Luke's account. So what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, well, even before going there, I, want to, I, want to, I like to beat dead horses, so I want to go back and <laughs> do, do a, do a yeah. little more beating here. So this is the question that I, I responded back when I was discussing with, with some of these brethren. I asked them this, and in and, and all sincerity. If you have the Bible in your hand, and you have a passage you're reading, and out of all the copies of the copies of the copies of the copies and all the manuscripts that we have— that the earliest manuscripts we have and all the manuscripts we have include something. If we cannot accept that as being authentic, what can we accept as being authentic? Yeah. If, In, in, in other words, if we're going to, 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 to question whether or not something should be textually authentic when it's in every single manuscript we have, when all the textual experts say, yes, this should be in there, when the early church fathers quoted showing that this was textually authentic what what else would you would it take what more would we need to say this is something that's textually authentic now as lee brought up there are other questions that need to be answered sure but before we can even answer that my question would be why would you not accept this as textually authentic and why what what would it take for me and anybody else to accept anything is textually authentic. I mean if if we're talking about a passage that is seen in every single manuscript that we have then based upon what evidence would we say that we shouldn't that that we not only should deny it but that we couldn't accept anything else. I mean we couldn't accept anything in the Bible if we can't accept something that's in every single manuscript that we have. So yeah. to to me this is so weak and it already begins to expose the fact that there is a presupposition as to why they don't want the exception clause there. And we're going to talk about that here in a little while. But Lee, back to your back to your question. Okay, so why is the exception clause not in Mark and Luke's account? So this is trying to create a problem where one does not exist because I could turn around and say, well, why doesn't Jesus talk about marriage, divorce, and remarriage at all in the Gospel of John? Why doesn't John not record anything Jesus has to say? about marriage, divorce, and marriage, because he doesn't. And so this is trying to create a problem where one does not exist. And it was not at all out of the ordinary for one gospel writer to include information, qualifiers, exceptions, when another gospel writer did not. For example, Jesus said in Mark eight twelve that no sign will be given to the scribes and Pharisees who wanted proof he was the Messiah. That's what Mark 8, 12. Jesus said there's no sign, and there was no exception, just no sign will be given. Yet Matthew and Luke include the exception that Mark doesn't include, which is except for the sign of Jonah. And that's in Matthew chapter sixteen, verse four and Luke chapter eleven verse twenty nine. So we see that this was not uncommon for Jesus to make a statement and one gospel writer simply talk about the 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 rule, if you will. And then another gospel writer include the exception to the rule. Another one would be when Jesus talks about forgiveness in Matthew 6, 14 and 15 and and Mark 11, 25 and 26. In both of those instances, there's no qualifiers, there's no additional exceptions at all about how we should forgive. No really instructions, just if, if your brother sins, you forgive him, period. But then we come to the gospel of Luke where Jesus is seen saying a little bit more Luke records the full story of what Jesus said, where Jesus says that when our brothers do sin against us, we need to correct them. We need to rebuke them. And if they repent, then we are to forgive them and accept them back. Well, that's a pretty important qualifier there. Oh, yeah. um, so we that's a qualifier that only we see in Luke that Jesus that Jesus gives, not in Matthew and Mark. So my, my first point to this is that this is creating a problem. By saying that the gospel of Matthew is the only one that has the exception clause and Mark and Luke do not, that is creating a problem that doesn't exist. I would agree with you. If this is the only time where there is a exception given and we see in the rest of the gospel accounts that the Bible doesn't work that way, that this is, this is very isolated in the way that it's written, then I would agree. But if I see that there's exceptions and rules and we see that constantly in the gospel accounts, which the two examples I showed are just two out. I mean, there's a there's ton we could point to to show where there's information in certain gospel accounts where there's not that same information in other gospel accounts. It's not a contradiction. It's just giving us the full story and the full picture. But additionally, this is where I think is very interesting. We can actually see similarities of how to understand exceptions, not just by looking at the gospel accounts themselves, but even looking to the Old Testament books, which pertain to laws on marriage. Now, this is powerful here. In Deuteronomy twenty two, twenty eight, 28, and 29, there is a law given pertaining to marriage that states that if a man finds a virgin who is not betrothed or married, and he ends up having sex with her, and they're found out, then she must become his wife. Now, this is, once again, Deuteronomy 22, 28, and 29. Now, there's no exception stated here. In the book of Deuteronomy, the law states that if a man ha- finds a woman, he likes her, and she's not betrothed to anybody, he has sex with her, then they must marry. She must become his wife, no exception. But then we see in the book of Exodus 22, 16 and 17, that there's an exception that is not found in Deuteronomy 22 about the exact same law. And that says that if the father does not want his daughter to marry that man, that a bride price can be paid instead, and the woman doesn't have to be married to the man. Now, no one concludes that this is a contradiction or problem. Just because Exodus has an exception to the law where Deuteronomy does not have the exception. So God's words, they, they, God's words, God's teaching, his principles have always had to be looked at as a whole. And so to me, when we look at this idea, it's very simple to understand that this is trying to create a problem that just doesn't exist because I could say the same thing. I could say, well, why is Luke the only one that says that you you should rebuke your brother? And he needs to repent before you can truly bring him back into the fold. Well, Matthew and Mark, they don't say that. Only Luke's account says that. So is that a discrepancy? Are we going to dismiss what Luke has to say? When Jesus said no sign will be given, period, with no exception. But then we see in in Matthew and Luke where Jesus does say that there is going to be an, uh, an exception of that, except for the prophet Jonah, which was a reference to his resurrection. Are we to say, well, maybe Jesus didn't mean that? Maybe Jesus just meant there is going to be no, of course not. So we have to take everything in totality. So do you you have any comment or anything you want to add to that?
0: Well, I think that it it just, it illustrates the point to me. And I, I know for me, in looking at all of this, it's so reflective on so many other things that I have believed or that I have held to in a general sense. It demonstrates the danger and the power of presuppositions. You know, if I go into this presupposing that there is no exception given, this is the rationale that I'm going to use to justify that. Well, the exception is only here, but there's no exception given to Mark or Luke. Well, yeah, but am I going to recognize that exception given for the bride price being paid there in Exodus if, if premarital sex is had between two individuals? Am I going to accept that and that sign of the prophet Jonah, those other exceptions? then there's more that we could talk about. But I think the reason why people don't look at it as a totality, they don't look at it as a whole, or maybe even they're not persuaded by it, is because they hold on to that presupposition and they hold on to it so strongly that they will take any logic, turn it on its head, and try to look at all of this through an angle or through a lens which still harmonizes with their preconception. I mean, preconceptions are powerful, they're dangerous. And not all of them are dangerous. I mean, you know, you've heard that term, there's no good snake, but a dead snake. And if you don't know how to recognize a venomous snake from a non-venomous snake, well, that's a presupposition that could save your life. But in, whenever we discuss the scriptures and we think about the scriptures, we need to recognize when a presupposition is in fact a presupposition. When a, when we're thinking something simply because we've inherited it, or it's a position that we possess because of our tradition or our upbringing or anything else, it's really difficult to do that. And to me, this illustrates just how dangerous those presuppositions can be.
1: Well, and the, uh, the argument that the person or people who are actually that, that they're making, because that's what I always want to look at. What is your actual argument? What is your presupposition? And when you come to the table saying, well, why is the exception only listed in the Gospel account of Matthew, but not Mark and Luke? you're already starting with a presupposition that says, in order for me to accept the exception clause, it must be in all three gospel accounts where Jesus talks about marriage. But that's not the same rules that they apply to any of the other teachings. They don't say, well, unless Jesus' teaching on forgiveness with rebuking a brother and him repenting is in also Matthew and Mark, then I'm not going to accept it in Luke's account. Well, they don't argue that way. They understand that we don't look at each gospel account as an exhaustive picture of what Jesus taught. Otherwise, we would only have one gospel account. And as I said before, if that's the case, then why don't we not ask why, Jesus does, why John doesn't record anything about the marital teachings of Jesus in his gospel? I could turn yeah. around and ask that question. We could we could pose all sorts of questions. That's the problem with questioning, is there's typically an ulterior motive. Sometimes it's not a demonic or a or a sinister ulterior motive, but there's this idea of, well, well, why does this happen? Well, why does this happen? Well, why is this here but not there? Well, okay, we can ask that question, but does it prove anything? Much less does it prove what you want it to prove, which ultimately they're asking that question in hopes to somehow dismiss the exception clause. And we're going to talk about that here. Uh, in just a few minutes. But the point being is that if you believe that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all supposed to be part of the New Testament, and if you believe that a passage (laughs) that is seen in Matthew is legitimate, then there's no reason to question why Matthew would have the exception and why Mark and Luke would not any more than I would question why Luke has the exceptions and additional information about forgiveness when matthew and Mark don't i don't doubt that i don't question that so why am i questioning this well because once again there's there's a reason behind it where the, the, there's individuals who are honestly trying to get get around the exception clause get to to do away with it and so to me this is just creating a problem that doesn't exist but there is another another objection we'll, we'll, i want to go ahead and delve into if that's okay or if, if you want to Say anything else about that?
0: No, no, I think that we've covered that really, really well. I just I, I think it's just important to note over and over and over again how we can all be susceptible to presupposition. We need to recognize that that's a possibility. But another thing that people argue against with the exception clause is that the word fornication is used in the original language instead of the word adultery in the exception clause. And that comes from that Greek word that's translated as fornication and yeah, how Yeah, pornea is a different word than the word adultery. So then people say, well, because of this, Jesus isn't referring to adultery in marriage, but something else, because he didn't use the word adultery. And I think that this is probably real similar to that, what we just talked about. We're
1: once again creating a problem that doesn't exist. Absolutely. And the word fornication, first of all, the the Greek word pornea, it's a word that includes unlawful sexual intercourse of any kind, including adultery. So this is not a word that excludes adultery by any stretch of the imagination. The word pornea, by the way, and, and, and this is just shows you if you spend a little bit of time, if you spend a little time researching it, it, it it's clear to see these things. Now, whether you end up agreeing with some of our ultimate conclusions, we have to be honest with argumentation. So the argument is that the word fornication should have not been used if Jesus was actually talking about sexual unfaithfulness in the marriage. They believe that Jesus, this argument says that Jesus would have used the word adultery, which was a different word than the word fornication is translated. I'm going to try to abstain from saying the Greek words because I know that's confusing. So I'm just going to say fornication versus adultery and then they're, because they're two different Greek words. So, so the word fornication, pornea, Oop, there I, I just said it. Okay, sorry. The word fornication ah. is used on multiple occasions in the Septuagint to describe both literal and figurative married persons who engage in sexual activity with someone other than their spouse. Now, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it is what many of the Jews, especially the Greek-speaking Jews, and a lot of the... Uh, people who had been converted, a lot of the Gentiles who have been converted to Judaism, it is what they used. But really that's, that was their main text was the Septuagint. That's what they would use to discuss the Old Testament because Greek at that point now was the common language in the first century. And this had been around for several hundred years, this copy of the Old Testament translated into the Greek. Well, here's why this is interesting. The word fornication is used to describe the... People who are having sex, or it's described to or it's used to describe the action of people who are having sex with someone other than their spouse. We see this in Amos 7 17, Hosea 1 2 and 3, Hosea 2 2 and 5, Ezekiel 16 8, Ezekiel 16 20, verse 22, verse 25, verse 28, verse 29, and chapter 23 verses 4 and 5. In factly, in Ezekiel 16 and 23, the word fornication is actually used in the Septuagint more times than the word adultery to describe sexual unfaithfulness when one is when one is married to somebody. So it's actually used 40 times concerning Israel's unfaithfulness to God while they were married. And the word adultery is used only six times here to describe the same action. So we see that not only are these words oftentimes used interchangeably, the word adultery and fornication, but when describing someone who is guilty of having sex with someone else while they're still married, that word fornication is used quite often to describe that action. So it's not out of the ordinary to use the word fornication if you are describing someone who would be having sex with someone else while they were still married. This wasn't, by the way, just the common usage of the term in biblical writings, but historically, Fornication is also seen being employed to describe the actions of a married person's unfaithful actions by other writers during that time as well. Uh, for example, Origen and Tatian and others talk about this word fornication being used to describe someone who's having sex while they're married with someone else. And, and
0: well, and you see that it, it makes perfect sense if we think about language and how it works. Adultery is a very specific word and fornication is a more generic word than adultery, but it includes adultery within its semantic domain. I mean, if, if I use the term copulate, copulate is the word for sex with a Latin root. That would be the, the medical term that you would use would be copulation or sexual activity. Now, copulation refers to specifically what we would think of as sex this is going to get a little explicit while sex would indicate possibly any other sex act that one might engage in. So that you have specific words and general words, you have a specific semantic domain, and then you have a more general semantic domain, the range at which that word can apply. fornication includes adultery within its semantic domain, and that's that's the entire point that that's being made here
1: well and oftentimes in not only the Bible but in extra biblical sources, the word fornication was used to specifically and explicitly talk about adultery. So once again, this question of why Jesus used the word fornication instead of adultery to try to create a problem where one does not exist, is it's the idea that we have to figure out why Jesus could not actually be giving an exception clause. That's where this, this basis is coming from. It's coming from this presupposition that there's no way Jesus could be giving an exception, so we have to find a way to dismantle the exception. But what we see here is that by the way, fornication was was not just a word that could encompass adultery or be used to describe it, but it was actually the common word to describe someone who was cheating on someone while they were married. It was actually more of the common word than adultery, by the way. Most people don't realize that. In fact, the word adultery in America is pretty defined. Most people in America know what the word adultery means. Do you know that the word, though, adultery, when you look at the Greek— there's, it's actually very undefined. A lot of people did not realize this. When you go and you study the word adultery, you're going to find that there's not that many sources for that Greek word. In fact, in other countries, I believe in Germany, the, uh, the Bible that is translated there actually has the word adultery translated as break wedlock. And so the point that I'm making is that the word fornication would not only be an acceptable term, but i believe from what we know it would be the proper term to use because what jesus is saying is he's covering all forms of sexual unfaithfulness not just if you sleep with someone of the opposite sex but what happens if you sleep with someone of the same sex guess what that's yeah. fornication what ha- so so it's covering all the grounds fornication jesus was was make was using this word because this is the common word to describe the idea of sexual indecency and that's going to be a a really interesting point here as we, as we continue forward, I'm laughing because this stuff is just, it's mind blowing to see how easy it is to connect it when uh w- when you look at the context but i'm not going to go there yet but it is going to be interesting when we we see a couple things here in a little while but the bottom line is that that's why jesus used the word fornication because that was the common word used to describe someone who was cheating on someone while they were married it wouldn't just include having sex with someone of the opposite sex it would include some someone having sex with of the same sex it would include it would include all forms of sexual immorality in the marriage bed so that is what Jesus there was talking about. So I don't really see any problem with Jesus using the word fornication instead of the word adultery, especially since it was not just the common word used to describe someone who was cheating on their spouse, but it would have been actually the, the probably the most common and the uh, most understood word to use there to encompass all forms of sexual immorality.
0: Well, those, in in essence, those are the semantic arguments that are made against the exception clause. It's either an interpolation or that Jesus used a different word than adultery. So it means something else. And those are the semantic arguments that are made against it. And those arguments, they don't stand. They don't hold water. They just don't work. So the next step that people will make whenever they want to dismiss the exception clause is that they'll take the exception clause and they'll recognize that it's there, but they'll assign a different meaning to it than what we see there. And and so they'll say, well, yeah, you know what? He does say except for fornication. He does say, you know, if a man divorces his wife, except for fornication. Okay, so the exception clause is there, but it doesn't mean that in particular. What it means is. Is that if this were an incestuous marriage or if this were some other type of marriage, they, they assign a different meaning to it than what's understood in order for them to be able to hold on to that presupposition, that position of no exception. And they, they're, that, that's the strategy that's usually taken to move forward with that. So why is it that people will misinterpret or misconstrue that exception clause and say it's not an exception to be able to divorce and remarry and it means something else? Well,
1: let me first begin by saying that I believe certainly that the exception clause doesn't have to be read straightforward. Uh, in fact, that's one of our common arguments is that. That's
0: one of the biggest points we're
1: making. Yeah, yeah. that there is, there is no doubt in my mind that the exception clause could mean whatever it needs to mean. In other words, I'm not saying because Jesus said it except for fornication, that's that that this is the way I understood it, this is the way I was taught. And so therefore that's what it must mean because that's what Jesus said. So I have no problem considering, an alternative meaning of the exception clause. Now, what I do have a problem with is someone denying the textual authenticity because it's very clear that that's there, but I don't have a problem with someone saying, well, Kevin, there may be another way to understand the exception clause. And, and there were once again, some of these same brethren who, who brought this up to me, which is interesting to me because the same people who said that they don't believe it's textually legitimate, then said, well, even if it is textually legitimate, here are some alternate understandings. Well I'm thinking, wait a minute. Do you believe it's textually legitimate or not? Because
0: Yeah, is it one way or the other? Because yeah, if it's not textually you, legitimate, then these yeah. other arguments don't really
1: matter. So so clearly you're not really hanging your hat on the fact that you don't that that you're that it's not textually legitimate because if you thought that it wasn't, you wouldn't even be needing to give all these alternative understandings. And so so there are basically two alternative understandings of the exception clause. Once you believe that they're textually authentic, once you believe that they are there in the text, there are basically two main fundamental different understandings of the exception clause, uh, or two two additional understandings other than what I would call the traditional understanding. So the first one is called the incestuous view, and a man by the name of Samuel Bakayoki was a leading proponent of what is known as the incestuous view. And by the way, Samuel Bakayoki, a great Bible scholar, by the way, he passed away some time ago, not too long. I mean, he, he lived in the same time period that, that we're in, but he did pass away some time ago. And he is a phenomenal Bible student on, on many different aspects. In fact, uh, some of his st- studies on the topic of hell I, I find fascinating and happen to agree with, but that's a different topic for a different time. But That time is coming. But Samuel Bakiochi, he actually believed um, that Jesus was not talking about giving an exception to divorce your spouse if they committed adultery. He did not believe that's what Jesus was talking about. He believed that That Jesus was giving a very limited and specific meaning to the word fornication, and he believed that the exception clause is an exception to only divorce your spouse if you are in an incestuous marriage that you should have not been in to begin with. Now, I know that may sound a little absurd. It may sound a little crazy, but there are some reasons that give some—at least we should think about this. We should at least consider. So here's his alleged arguments as to why he believes this. And by the way, he's not the only one who believes this. He's just, I would say probably one of the more studied individuals who believes this on more of a scholarly level who really articulates it very well. So this is, so this is his alleged argument. He believes that since Jesus was teaching in Judea, which is the same reason as where John rebuked Herod, then the exception clause must be understood as only applying to incestuous relationships. In other words, Jesus was bringing validation to John's rebuke when he told Herod that it wasn't lawful for him to have his brother's wife. So he believes that Jesus is alluding to the fact that John was correct by rebuking Herod because he had married his brother's wife, which was against the incestuous laws of the Jewish law. And so therefore, this is actually what Jesus is alluding to in his exception clause. Now... (laughs) I know that sounds that sounds like a lot, but let's consider it for a moment, and let's think of some questions here as to see if that is something that's believable. I believe that this premise is unwarranted because it is layered with several assumptions. For example, Jesus did not just give his exception clause to the scribes and Pharisees when he was teaching um when they came up to challenge him. He also gave the exception clause when he was teaching his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount, which was at a different time in a different situation. I believe Jesus taught the same thing, but it was a different time and different situation. So I don't really see Jesus having to feel like he has to defend John the Baptist in the Sermon on the Mount, especially when most people believe that the Sermon on the Mount was probably possibly before um, John even taught and rebuked here to begin with. Now, there is some debate over that, and I don't think we can really know one way or the other. But the point is, is that Jesus, if, if we're trying to fit an understanding of what the exception clause is, it can't just work in the scribes and Pharisees. It also has to work with what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I think contextually
0: it fits with this narrative um, exceptionally well, because the Sermon on the Mount, the particulars with the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus was basically saying that keeping the letter of the law wasn't enough. Your heart has to be in the right place. And that fits the trajectory of scripture. God looking at the heart and God desiring the heart of his, of his people and Jesus transforming the hearts of mankind. That's essentially what Jesus is arguing. He's not going to break that narrative flow and saying murder begins in the heart. Adultery begins in the heart. If you, you know, commit adultery against your spouse or if you uh, treacherously divorce your spouse, you commit adultery against them. He's not going to break that narrative flow to say, oh, and by the way, you guys heard what John said over yonder. <laughs> yeah, he's, that, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. That's not something that, that we would do. It's not something that really works. So that does make
1: perfect well, sense. And so in addition, we need to be careful not to read too much into the text. And so while it's true that Herod and Herodias were violating the Jewish incestuous laws, we've already talked about that. I believe that was our second episode. Interestingly enough, if someone did sin by marrying a close relative, the law said nothing about divorce. In fact, the law assumed the couple would actually continue in their marriage, and the penalty would be that they would just be childless. And we see that in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 21. So For more on Herod and Herodias, go back to our part two, where we spend a a great deal of time talking about Herod and Herodias and some of the different understandings on that. But the bottom line is that if, even if one wanted to argue that Jesus was giving an exception to divorce for incestuous reasons, there would be no reason to believe that Jesus would be giving a special and limited meaning to the term fornication here, because as we discussed earlier, it encompasses all unlawful sexual intercourse. So I couldn't say, well, because... it it could include fornication, then that's the only thing it must include. Well, no, I believe when Jesus used the word fornication, he's talking about all fornication. All forms of fornication would be sinful. So sure, if I'm married to someone and they end up shacking up with their brother or sister, I definitely think that would be grounds for divorce. I would think so, yeah. Because that fits under the idea of fornication. So what Samuel Bakayoki and others have tried to do is they've tried to present a very limited understanding of the word fornication in this context. Instead of the broad definition of fornication, they're trying to present a very limited idea. And I just don't think that it works. So the first argument is they would say that this explains, uh, this would be Jesus giving validation to what John did. And that assumes John even told Herod and Herodias that they had a divorce, which I argue that that may have not even been the case because of Leviticus twenty twenty one. But even if it was the case is that really what Jesus is concerning himself with in the Sermon on the Mount and with his discussion with the Scribes and Pharisees? Even if you could argue that possibly is what Jesus is doing with the scribes and Pharisees, it doesn't make sense for Matthew 5, 31 and 32, where yeah, it Jesus doesn't is talking. It doesn't fit. That really doesn't fit because whatever you say about the exception in one place, we have to be consistent and say, well, that's what Jesus meant in the exception. So, so that that I don't think it really is gives a good explanation, but there's another alleged argument for this incestuous view. And that is that the word fornication, now this this one, by the way, before I get into it, this is going to, this might get a little confusing. So I'm going to try to explain it. A lot of this, I've actually tried to copy and paste in Samuel Bakayoki's own words. But some of this is, is I'm doing the best I can. I've kind of put it in my words to try to make it a little more easier to understand. So this is the second argument. So what he's trying to do and what, what this view tries to do is they try to take the word fornication and, and limit the meaning to just be uh, incestuous relationships. Okay. Does that make sense? So that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to say that the word here for, for fornication in this context is limited to only incestuous relationships. And here's another way that they try to do that. The word fornication is found in the, in Acts chapter 15, verse 20 and verse 29. And he believes that the council, The Jerusalem Council's reordering in Acts 15-29 of James' list in Acts 15-20 of the requirements for the Gentile believers supposedly proves the dependence upon what he calls the holiness code found in Leviticus 17, 8-18 as a source for the suggestions. Now, here's what this means. Assuming the Leviticus material to be ceremonial, it is argued that since the word fornication means incest, in Acts fifteen, then it must mean incest in the exception clauses. Did I lose you on any of that, Lee? I know that was a mouthful.
0: <laughs> no, we just no, we just studied um, not too long ago. We're going through the Book of Acts during our Wednesday night services, and we did Acts fifteen not long ago. So this is still relatively fresh in my mind. And the idea is that that holiness code that's found in Leviticus seventeen. Um, acts as a source for what the Jerusalem Council decided. And the idea is is that in this case, that necessarily would infer, or imply rather, that porneia, the word for fornication, means incest in Acts 15. And if it means that there, then it can also mean that in what Jesus
1: taught. Well, and they go a step further and say it must mean that, because they are saying that if... The word, ince- if, if incestuous relationships are mentioned in the Holiness Code, and we see in Acts 15 that the word pornea is used, then whatever is included in the Holiness Code must be what Jesus was referring to as well in Acts 15, or what, what uh, when Paul talks about fornication, then that would be incestuous relationships, because that's what it meant in the Holy Code of Leviticus. Now, There's several problems. First of all, as I've already said, I have no problem saying that the word fornication encompasses incest. The word fornication encompasses all forms of sexual intercourse, whether it's heterosexual, homosexual, incestual, uh, even bestiality, by the way. It it encompasses all forms of sexual immorality, all forms of, of, of sexual intercourse it encompasses. And so First of all, I would say that that really doesn't prove anything because proving that the word fornication can mean incestuous sex, I agree with that. I whole, wholeheartedly agree with that. I have no problem with that. The question is, is Does that... Does it
0: require it? Does it... It must mean well, it's different thing? than it can yeah. mean. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Is
1: it exclusively talking about that in the marital teachings of Jesus? So once again, this argument is is full of some presuppositions and contradictions. So let's consider this. For starters, Leviticus show that the pornea equivalents found within them are also the sins of the Gentiles in Acts 15. Okay, got no problem with that. This is what caused God to remove them from the land. In other words, this list is not necessarily a list of ceremonial rituals at all. It's simply giving this list of sins that caused the Gentiles to be removed from the land during that time. But more importantly, Leviticus 18, 19 through 23 includes adultery, as a pornea or as a fornication equivalent. So the whole effort to restrict the word fornication to a specific and exclusive use by appealing to Leviticus is actually negated because in this same list that they try to use to specify only pornea or to mean uh, incest, the word adultery in the action of Sexual unfaithfulness is also seen there as well with someone who is married. Does that make sense? So in other words, linguistically speaking, if you're going to make this argument, you can't just isolate the word pornea and say it means incest when we see that there is a whole list of sexual sins included in the word fornication in Acts 15. So at best, you could say that it is inclusive of incest, but not that it is exclusive of incest. Does that make sense? I feel like I may have lost some folks on that because I know I, we're, we're saying a lot of things here that may be new to people.
0: Well, we're using a lot of terms and we're we're treading a lot of new water here. But the idea is, if, if we even boil it down further, the idea is, is that because of that ax or that list in Acts 15, including um, this word, porneia, fornication, that it includes incest in its semantic domain and it must use incest because they point back to Leviticus. Well, if you go back to Leviticus to prove that case, you see a wider semantic domain. You don't see it limited to just incest. So the very text you try to go to to prove the position for Acts 15, which then proves the position for what Jesus said with the exception clauses in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, you're kangaroo all around the Bible. But whenever you go back to your original text to set your foundation, which is in Leviticus, you see it doesn't work because Leviticus includes more than just incest in its definition of fornication.
1: Yeah, if anything, you can't go to Leviticus to limit. You would have to go to Leviticus to widen the understanding of pornea. So they're actually going to Leviticus to try to to say, well, hey, look, here the word pornea, this could include incest. But yeah, in that same context, it includes adultery. It includes bestiality, it includes all forms of, yeah. of sexual immorality. So if anything, all this does is give us a good understanding that the word pornea is not exclusive, but it is a wide-ranging, broad word that encompasses all forms of sexual immorality, all sorts of sexual intercourse. And so that's, the, that's another argument that I don't believe is very valid. But another argument, another alleged argument for this incestuous view is that proponents of this position attempt to use the incestuous view to answer why Matthew included the exception, but Mark and Luke didn't. And we just talked about this a few minutes ago. So they say, well, this is why Matthew included the exception, but Mark and Luke didn't, because they argue that this is a Jewish concern And this is why pornea is found in Matthew, and it's not found in Mark and Luke, because Mark and Luke predominantly are writing to a Gentile audience, Gentile Roman audience. And so they would say, well, this is more of just a Jewish concern anyway. So that's why Matthew includes this exception about incestuous uh, relationships. You can divorce those, but it doesn't include it in Mark and Luke. Now here's to me, this this is the weakest and most inconsistent argument, and here's why. Number one, as we've already pointed out, the exception in Matthew is in Matthew, but not Mark and Luke. That proves nothing. We've already discussed that. But this also proves their inconsistency in their argumentation, and here's why. The very text they use in order to allegedly prove their point of trying to limit the word pornea to incestuous relationship comes from Acts 15, verse 20 and 29. And this is where... Luke, being, by the way, the author of the book of Acts, this is where a letter is being written to Gentiles. Seeing as Luke authored Acts and the gospel of Luke, why would he have not included the exception in his own gospel if indeed this is something the Gentiles needed to hear? Yeah. (laughs) So this does not explain why Luke would omit the exception clause from his own account. If anything. This would scratch our heads, making us wonder why Luke would not include it when he includes it in the gospel or when when he includes it in the account of Acts. Because on the one hand, this argument says, well, the Gentiles wouldn't need to hear this. But then you go to Acts 15 and say, well, this is what the Gentiles would need to hear. So this is highly inconsistent to say that this is why Matthew has it, but not Mark and especially Luke. That does not make a bit of sense. Does that make sense? (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, it does uh, well, what you said makes sense. The <laughs> argumentation
1: makes sense, yeah. makes sense. Yeah.
0: Well well, the argumentation doesn't make sense because if this is just limited to the Jews, you see, Matthew wrote to the Jews, and the Jews needed to hear this because they had a higher propensity because they wanted to marry Jewish people of possibly entering into incestuous relationships. And if they found out that they had they married the cousin or some nonsense like that, well then they have the right to divorce. That's Matthew's exception. The, the Gentiles didn't need to hear this, and yet Luke wrote to Gentiles, and the whole list was what new Gentile converts to the faith would need to observe. So it doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, I mean, the bottom line is is that there's no real reason to believe that when Jesus was stating his exception clause, that he was limiting the exception to incestuous marriages. He certainly included them within these fornication it, within the semantic domain of fornication it's yeah, certainly ince- incestuous
1: there. sex yeah any type of of sexual immorality is definitely yeah. included in the word, it's porno, but included. it's not limited it's to not, just incest. Yeah. yeah
0: it's not exclusive to incest alone um even so though there are still people that that you know look at this they still accept this perspective and we've enumerated why that's the case, but we've also enumerated why that's not really the best reading of this. It's not really the best interpretation of it. Um, now, let another- me, let me
1: interject one more thing before we get onto the to different view. And and that is that there are actually people who, ex, who take the position of the incestuous view, who actually hold pretty much identically to the views, everything else you and I are both espousing. They just, they just believe that the exception there is not talking about divorce for adultery. They believe that it's, it's a, it's a different meaning. But for example, Rick, Rick, actually, he is a preacher in the churches of Christ. He actually holds to the incestuous view, but he would agree with me and you on many other points on the majority of things. Just, he would just, just agree with the exception. And so I want to note that we're not demeaning anybody for holding these different positions. There are people I'm friends with. There are people who are great scholars who hold these positions, but personally after studying it, I'm just not convicted and I'm explaining why I'm not convinced and why I'm not convicted. Um, In fact, most, most Bible preachers, most teachers, most even scholars sometimes aren't even going to give these a second thought because they're in such a minority view. But I think we need to at least be fair to consider them, even though I don't think that they're correct. I want to at least give them a a stage so that people can hear. And to me, the more you look at alternative views, the correct view becomes even clearer in my mind. But the point I want to make is there are people who do believe in these different alternative meanings to the exception clause who still ultimately believe a lot of what we teach and conclude. They just have different beliefs and their nuances on the exception clause.
0: Well, and they believe these things in good faith. I mean, and, and that's the thing you and I, and I don't want to paint an inappropriate picture here because we've talked a lot about presuppositions and I don't want the listeners, I don't want you guys to come away with this idea that we, that, well, Kevin and Lee are saying anyone that holds this view only holds this view because they have a presupposition. I think the majority of people that do hold this view do so because they have inherited it and because they haven't really looked at other avenues and other things, but... There are people who do hold these positions in good faith. To them, it makes the most sense of what the scriptures teach. Well, and there's and people who another changed. matter entirely. Yeah, yeah, there's
1: people who've changed and they they don't believe this because of their presupposition. Uh, you know, they ended up changing because they're just convicted on it. And sometimes it, it just comes down to we we disagree, and that's why we have to work out our own salvation. I mean, that's what this whole podcast is about. It, it we we have to explore our own faith. We, we have, this is something that we ourselves need to be willing to, to come down on because I once had someone, they said, Kevin, it's so confusing. You know, I just wish there were enough people who agreed with me. I said, here's the thing. The second that you find enough people who agree with you, you're all of a sudden going to find somebody who disagrees with you. And if that's going to be your gauge to how you're convicted, you're always going to have smart people and convicted people and sincere people on any side of, of, or or on both sides, and really all sides, not just both, because I don't think we we should be binary thinkers. On all sides of every issue, you are going to have smart, intelligent, scholarly, sincere, good-hearted people who believe things on all sides of every issue. And so if your position is, I'm just going to try to figure out who the smartest man is, agree with him, that's not working out your own faith. And so, yeah. Anyway, we're kind of getting off subject here, but the point is, is that there are sincere, non-presuppositional individuals who who hold these positions, um, yeah. but we disagree, and we're giving reasons why we disagree. So let's let's now move on to the, really the second and the, I, I would dare say the the really the only other main competing view, and that is called the betrothal view. And John Piper is a leading proponent of this view so well used to William Heth and others were as well. William Heth has actually changed. Um, but that's, we'll probably talk about that some more later on, not in today's episode, but he ended up changing his position. And, um, which is interesting because he wrote a, a study as to why he wrote a little book as to why he changed his mind. So, and by the way, he was actually considered probably one of the leading top, if not the top scholar, on the betrothal view on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And so the fact that he changed is very interesting because as a man myself who changed convictions, I always am interested to see when people abandon their conviction that they held for, for a long time, because that takes a lot to do. And so I'm always interested when someone gives their explanation and he does that. If, if, even if you want to Google search, uh, just William Heth, why I changed my mind, you can actually get that PDF book for free. Uh, they offer awesome. that for free. So anyway, the point though is he used to believe it and he was a leading proponent. And by the way, most people, including John Piper, pull from his own material. <laughs> so, so <laughs> it's it's interesting. But um so this view argues that Jesus was teaching an exception to divorce only during um the betrothal period. So they actually believe that this is an exception to divorce for sexual unfaithfulness, but they believe that it could only take place during the betrothal period betrothal period. And this view is argued from the perspective that this is what Joseph and Mary did. This is what happened with Joseph and Mary. So what this is saying is that Jesus, just like the incestuous view says that Jesus was trying to justify John's actions. This view says that Jesus was justifying Joseph's actions, that Joseph was going to divorce Mary because of her perceived sexual unfaithfulness. And Jesus is actually affirming that that was okay. So this is saying that this view is only in relation to divorcing your betrothed, and Jesus was justifying Joseph's actions of how he was going to divorce Mary while they were betrothed. And this is also supposed to answer why only Matthew records the exception since the Gospel of Matthew would be to a Jewish audience. So let's just kind of Let's drill this. that down a bit, yeah. So first of all, the problem with this is that the Greeks and Romans were familiar with and participated in forms of engagement and betrothal. So this wouldn't really give an answer to the very problem that this presupposition creates. In, in other words, just because Matthew has the exception and Mark and Luke doesn't, and your argument is well, because Jesus what or because Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience and this was only dealing with betrothal, well, the Gentiles also were involved in betrothal. So this would also be something that would affect them. If, for, if it was okay to divorce for fornication during your betrothal, then why would that not be something that the Gentiles would need to hear in the Romans because they themselves too were involved in engagements and betrothals. But furthermore, the context of Matthew 5, 31 and 32 and Matthew 19, 1 and 10 is in relation to marriage. It's not in relation to betrothal. The, the Greek word translated as marriage in this context And this is is once again one of those word studies, but the Greek word translated marriage in this context never refers to a betrothal in the New Testament, in the Septuagint, or in any extra biblical sources.
0: Yeah. Well, and it, it seems like it would be really, really hard to make that fit, especially in Matthew 19. Whenever the Pharisees are asking about divorcing their wife for any reason or certificate of divorce and how that references and relates to Deuteronomy 24, you don't see that idea of betrothal in Deuteronomy 24 either. And the fact that Jesus uses a word that deals with marriage, even though that you could break off a marriage, you know, you could break off a betrothal. The idea here that Jesus is commenting on is marriage. It's not betrothal. The language, the context, everything points to that.
1: Well, it would be quite odd for Jesus to be asked a question about divorcing for any reason, and then he interject an exception about betrothal when he's not even talking about betrothal. They weren't interested in betrothal. He knew that. He's not interested in talking about betrothal. In fact— if Jesus wanted to speak of betrothal, he could have used the Greek word that meant betrothal. There is a Greek word for betrothal. Matthew 118 and Luke 1.27, uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 5. So there is a Greek word for betrothal, but instead Jesus used the word for marriage. But here's what's very interesting contextually with this. In the Jewish law, there are no laws, there are no restrictions, and there are no instructions in the Old Testament, nor are there any known laws in any extra biblical Jewish writings when it came to reasons for ending a betrothal. You could end a betrothal for any reason. This was never debated. There were no debates, zero, none, zilch, nada. No debates were ever had in regards to if you could divorce the person you were betrothed to. So it would be extremely strange, not only for Jesus to interject a teaching about betrothal, but it would especially be strange for Jesus to interject an exception to a non-existent law that nobody debated. Yeah. There wasn't even a law. There was, there, there was no question as to whether or not you could divorce the person you were betrothed to. There was no debate on that. By the way, why would Jesus have to justify Joseph's actions when Joseph didn't even do anything? Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) do do, do the people who now now think about this joseph didn't even do anything furthermore matthew was not written until some 30 years after jesus spoke to the scribes and pharisees the scribes and pharisees probably did not even know joseph was going to divorce mary because that was not written until later and chances are they weren't even privy to that information so why in the world would Jesus be dealing with a situation to justify a man who didn't even do an action in relation to a context that has nothing to do with betrothal to give an exception to a law that doesn't even exist? So, it's just really nonsense. It boggles the
0: mind, man. It so,
1: boggles the mind. But but here's the thing: even if we were to assume, let's just let's just throw away all that for a moment, and let's assume that Jesus was speaking about betrothal. Then it still would not affect the exception clause that would permit one to divorce their spouse for their spouse's sexual unfaithfulness after they were married. And here's why. We talked about this a little bit in our first and second episode, but under Jewish law, both pre and post consummational unfaithfulness were considered the same offense with the same consequence. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 22 through 27. So even if, for whatever reason, Jesus is interjecting a betrothal exception to a law that doesn't even exist, (laughs) even if he was doing that, even if that's the case, if pre-consummational unfaithfulness were grounds for divorce, then so were post-consummational unfaithfulness. The Jews nor the Jewish law ever separated the two sins nor the consequence, But I don't even believe you have to go that far to argue, because the fact of the matter is Jesus would not be giving an exception to something that wasn't even considered wrong, especially when chances are they didn't even know about what Joseph was going to do. That was something that Matthew recorded some 30 years later uh, so that we could have kind of the whole story of what happened and what took place.
0: Well, it would almost be like they're asking Jesus about, if I can use kind of a silly illustration, it'd be almost like they're asking Jesus about or... In our modern era, they're asking him about, you know, violating the speed limit. You know, well, how fast can one go over the speed limit before they really violate the speed limit? And then Jesus says, well, if the speed limit 65, but you're going 60, that has nothing to do with what they're even getting at. It's like, what are you talking about? There's nothing. If the speed limit's 65, there's no law against going 60. It's, it's kind of the same principle. You could end a betrothal for any reason whatsoever, any reason at all.
1: Yeah, and that's but, and and that's why Joseph was actually considered a just man because he was just going to take her to Hill Court and just divorce her. Now there 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 you know you can get into well there was it was still a legal contract yes it was and there's you still needed a a divorce certificate yes but at the same time there were no divorces I mean there were no debates about whether or not you could or couldn't divorce your betrothed like there was a debate with Deuteronomy twenty four and so. Like I said, why would Jesus feel like he needs to give an exception to excuse Joseph for an action he didn't do when there wasn't even a law he violated in the first place? I mean, that doesn't even make proper sense. And so uh, and, and once again, I've studied this as, as I'm trying to be as honest as I can with you on this. I'm not trying to make any overstatements, but if there's anyone out there listening to this and and there's a law in the Old Testament that that, that forbid someone to divorce uh, during the betrothal period, I'd love to see it because I've never been able to find it in the Jewish law. I've even, contact, I've even contacted some different Jewish rabbis uh, to try to figure out, okay, well, what what would be the point here? You know, what's going on? Why why would there, was there any debate about betrothal and divorcing during your betrothal period? And the only responses I received is, well, sometimes it could be a little difficult because of exchange of money and money had to be given back and there may be some loss of some money and loss of of, of reputations and things like that. But it, it, it wasn't this big debate. That's not what the scribes and Pharisees were asking Jesus. They were asking him about marriage, and there have been no reason for Jesus to just randomly throw in this exception about betrothal to to justify what Joseph did when he didn't even do it. He didn't, he didn't even divorce yeah. her. So why would they? Why would he need grounds? I mean, this just doesn't even make sense. So well, it's like me trying to justify
0: something that I have never done it's it just it like you said it makes no sense it boggles the mind i mean the bottom line here is that there's really no reason to believe that when jesus gave the exception clause that he was talking exclusively about sexual unfaithfulness during the betrothal period it could certainly include the betrothal period but it wasn't limited to the betrothal period it just well, doesn't I, fit the context in any sense
1: and i think we've got to also look at why people believe these alternative understandings because I've actually I've when I wrote on this I, I wrote on this extensively about four or five years ago and I remember people saying well Kevin I've never even heard of this you know th- these, these this stuff is just so out of the norm I mean why are you even addressing this I said well because number one there are people who believe it number two there's sincere and smart people who believe it and I think that we need to I think we need to figure out what exactly we need to you know we need to do um and and you know as far as addressing this situation and not just ignore it so do i think that these are valid alternative understandings no but i think we need to figure out how to address it and to make sure we're not simply just ignoring it and so the the other thing to consider is why are people believing these alternative understandings and that is because there is this idea that marriage cannot be dissolved that jesus was teaching a new standard that jesus was teaching the indissolvability of marriage and so having an exception clause flies in the face of the indissolvability of marriage. It flies in the face of that. So they there has to be a way to explain that away. But the bottom line is we can't explain that away. And the exception clause is legitimate. There's no reason to believe it's not textually authentic. There's no reason to believe that it should be limited to just incestuous um, sex, nor should, is there any reason to believe it's just talking about betrothal sex or sex uh, sexual unfaithfulness during the betrothal period. What we see is that, except for fornication, is legitimate grounds. And so, Leah, let's let's try to go ahead and knock the rest of this out. And ask this: Did Jesus teach that adultery is the only valid ground for divorce? That's that's I, the big question here. Because most people listening to this probably already agree with us. Everything we just said today, probably people are like, "Okay, good. I didn't, I didn't even hear that, but I've heard it and now. It's been refuted. <laughs> so, okay, I'm all right. Whatever. Now let's get to the real question. And that is is did Jesus teach that adultery is the only valid grounds for divorce? We're not even going to talk about Paul. That's going to be next week. I'm talking about did Jesus teach that adultery is the only valid grounds for divorce?
0: I don't think so, and you don't think so. And I know that because we've talked about this at length. And there's a lot of good reasons to believe that Jesus isn't referring to Adultery is the only valid ground for divorce, because as we said, whenever we contextualize Jesus a couple episodes ago, when we discussed last week, the guilty party at the top of this episode, when we talked about the innocent, we recognize that Jesus's statements must be contextualized. They must be qualified. If we take everything that Jesus says as straightforward, then we're left with some really, really, really rough and wrong conclusions about cutting off hands and plucking out eyes and not resisting and and everything else. So his exceptions, any exceptional statement that Jesus makes has to be qualified. I mean, one of the things you talked about not too long ago was the idea that um, when Jesus said in Matthew 12, that no one could eat the showbread except for the priest. And Jesus uses that same word except, but it wasn't an exclusive exception because the law also stated that if a priest had a servant or had servants in born in his house, or if he brought in a hired servant in Leviticus 22, then they could eat of the showbread as well. And Jesus wasn't contradicting himself here. He's using a qualified exception. Um, and there's even more to that. Even though it's not stated within the letter of the law, Jesus taught that the purpose of the law allowed David and his men to eat the showbread, and they didn't sin whenever they did so. Even though David wasn't a priest, and even though his men weren't priests, they didn't commit sin whenever they ate of the showbread. Jesus taught that there can be unstated exceptions to the rule whenever they fit within the intent of the law.
1: Well, and another example of a qualified exception would be when Jesus said that no sign would be given to prove his Messiahship. We talked about that early, earlier, where Jesus said in one instance, no sign would be given. And then in Matthew 12, 39, Jesus said, except the sign of Jonah. So are we to conclude then that there was only one sign that proved Jesus' Messiahship, and that was the resurrection? Well, the answer is no, because Jesus performed many signs other than his resurrection. In fact, he had literally just performed a miracle right before these <laughs> people's eyes. Like he literally had just performed a miracle meant to show that he was the Messiah. So the fact that Jesus said there's only going to be one sign, just one sign, and that's going to be the resurrection. There wasn't just one sign. In the context, Jesus' point is this is gonna be the the main sign. This is gonna be the final sign. This is almost a synecdoche for everything else I've done because when I resurrect from the dead, everybody's gonna look back and be like, man, this 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 man, Jesus, whose God, was performing miracles his whole ministry, and we rejected it. And yet that resurrection was gonna be that that sign, that not not just a sign, it was going to be kind of the sign, like I said, almost a synecdoche, if you will. But he's not saying that these are the only signs that I have ever performed or will ever perform because Jesus, like I said, he literally just performed a sign in front of the same audience. They had just seen a sign. So Jesus wasn't saying that I'm only going to do one and only one. So there are so many examples where we see that exceptions are oftentimes qualified. Are there times where exceptions may not be qualified, that they may be exclusive. Sure, no doubt about it. But you can't just come to an exception and say, since the word accept is used, that disqualifies any other exceptions. Because oftentimes exceptions are stated within their context and they're being qualified within the context. I remember when I was a kid, a lot of times when my mom and dad would go out for, for a few hours, they would uh, they would leave me by my, at the house by myself, which was number problem number one was leaving me at the house by myself when I was a kid. But they would always say that you cannot leave the house under no circumstances unless your grandmother comes to the door. Well, sometimes I had one of my grandmothers who would come and, and she would, you know, come over there. And, you know, especially when I was home alone, she'd sometimes come over there. Well, guess what? I had another grandmother. The, the, the fact is, though, she lived further away. The chances of her coming to the house wasn't even in the picture. So when she said, don't leave the house under no circumstances unless your grandmother comes to the door, she wasn't saying if for whatever reason my other grandmother just happened to pop in, I'm going to be like, look, I'm sorry, I can only open the door for my other grandmother because my mom was very specific in her exception. That would not make any sense. I, as a kid, even understood G- uh, my mom was giving a qualified exception if the house was on fire. I would leave the house. I wouldn't say, well, you know what? Mom said I can't leave the house unless one of my grandmothers is here. And so, you know what? I'm just going to have to stay here and burn because that's what mom said. <laughs> there are there were multiple, multiple exceptions that weren't stated within that one statement. I understood that what mom meant is if my grandmother, who oftentimes would come to see me while I was by myself, if she came, yes, that's what she's talking about. She's not saying if your other grandmother happens to come by, which wasn't planned, that you couldn't open the door for. She didn't mean if there was a fire that I couldn't leave the house or if there was a tornado that I couldn't get in the storm uh, cellar. I understood those things. And so we as humans understand that oftentimes exceptions are not exclusive that there are yeah. that it needs to be qualified because usually we're only given an exception when it fits the context. If if there's an exception that I could give you but it's not really in dealing with the context, I'm probably not going to give it. So so that being said, here's why I believe Jesus is using a qualified exception and not an exclusive exception in Matthew 19 and Matthew 5. First of all, Jesus was not contradicting the law of Moses, and we've said this over and over and over and over again. The law of Moses included Both moral and emotional neglect is valid grounds for divorce. That's in Exodus chapter 21, verses 7 through 11. These lessons, these episodes build upon one another. So if you have not heard any of the other lessons, if this is the first lesson you're listening to, please go back and listen to episode two, where we spend a great deal of time talking about Exodus 21, 7 through 11, and how that was a valid grounds for divorce according to the Jewish law, according to Moses, and according to all the rabbis, In fact, all Jews accepted Exodus 21, 7 through 11 as moral grounds for divorce. Lee, did you know there are absolutely no texts? I was actually researching this again this week just to make sure. There are no texts of any rabbis debating Exodus 21, 7 through 11 as far as being grounds for divorce. Not a single rabbi denied that.
0: Wow. Not a
1: single one. Well, and rabbis
0: love to debate. Rabbis love to that's
1: argue. That's what we did. I it's had, like preachers today. Can you imagine well, saying that all preachers today agree on something? <laughs> well, I had, well, d- d- yeah, like that's
0: ever going to happen. But I had some, um, I had some classmates who were Jewish, and one of the things that they would say that, and they were, um, they were, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Devout Jews. They weren't just Jewish by their lineage. They observed Judaism. And they, I mean, they went so far as to whenever it came time to take national boards, they would not take boards on the Sabbath. They wouldn't do it. Wow. So they would, yeah, they would apply for a religious exemption that would allow them to take their um, national board examination on either the Friday before Sabbath, before sundown or um, on Sunday. And that that's, that's how devout they were. And we would have some religious discussions. They were awesome people, really cool people. And we would have some religious discussions, and they would talk about how their uncles were rabbis, and they would have different opinions and different schools of thought. And one of the things they loved to do was get together and drink wine and argue. They loved to do it, and they there was no acrimony against one another. There was no animosity against one another. Maybe we should that be was, Jews. Maybe we should be, but <laughs> but they really enjoy. It. I like bacon too much, man. I don't know. I could give bacon up, but they. Uh, but that's something that they did. So. The fact that rabbis wouldn't debate the fact that Exodus 21, 7 through 11 is grounds for divorce, to me, that's huge. I mean, yeah, well, that- I, I- I mean, we know that like the different schools would debate about the length of time before one could divorce for neglect or how much food, clothing, and shelter would be required to be amiss, or like how far, how far short a spouse would have to fall in providing those things before they could divorce. There were debates on the nuances, but no one ever debated. I think that's really interesting that no one ever
1: debated that they, that these were valley grounds for divorce. That's right. And that's a good point you bring up. We're not saying that the rabbis didn't debate the meaning of Exodus twenty-one seven through eleven as far as the specifics, because as you brought up, even Shammai and Hillel debated the length of time, and, and it would depend on okay, well, how long can you wait until you can divorce for neglect? You know, is it is it one week? Is it one month? Is it six months? How long exactly? And what all what all does neglect entail? How much food, uh, and how much how much time away, and how much neglect, and all those different things were debated. But what was not debated? Is that Exodus twenty-one seven through eleven provided grounds to divorce for neglect, and in fact required you to divorce if you were not providing? Because that's when women could actually sue and say, "My husband was not providing," and so therefore I need to uh, get my divorce certificate so I can go and remarry another man. The bottom line is that was part of the Jewish law. It's Exodus twenty-one seven through eleven. It's not just part of the Jewish law in the scriptures. But we see that extra-biblical material, this was a very common understanding. This is how they used this passage. This was something that no Jew debated. I mean, after all, if someone was neglected, no one's going to turn around and say, well, you know what, just... Sorry, that's just the way it is. I mean, even they have to, to death
0: or die of exposure. Yeah. I mean, it's at the,
1: at the me. heart of, of God's law always has been protecting the innocent and taking care of those who are neglected. So if you weren't able to provide, if you were being neglected, then Exodus 21, 7 through 11 provided that. Once again, if you're not sure, if you've never studied that, please go back to our second episode. And if, if you're not, if you can't find that, just let us know, email us and we'll make sure to get that to you. But here's why all that's interesting. So, Instone Brewer points out that Exodus twenty-one ten and eleven is a near perfect parallel between the wording of Jesus' exception clause and the Shammai ruling in the divorce debate. Or Shammai. Now you've got me saying Shammai. Shammai. <laughs> so <it's>, <laughs> <Gotcha>. <laughs> now, now I'm saying it wrong. Now. So what you see here is with the Shammai ruling on their actual divorce certificates. They would, they would have except for indecency. But except for indecency was in relation to Deuteronomy 24 and included the moral grounds of neglect in Exodus 21, 7 through 11. Let that sink in for a second. Let that sink in for a second. Exodus 21, 10, 11 is a near-perfect parallel between the wording of Jesus' exception clause and what was on the Shema divorce certificates. Now, here's where things get really interesting. The same exception clause that the Shammai court used is what Jesus used. Yet the school of Shammai believed that the neglect of 21 7 through 11 were also valid grounds for divorce. So you have uh, Shammai, the school of Shammai, who would use the phrase except for indecency to not just say adultery based upon Deuteronomy 24. But that would also include the neglect of Exodus 21, 7 through 11. So when the school of Shammai said except for indecency or except for a matter of fornication, in the context of this debate about any matter divorces, they meant that Deuteronomy 24 allow no other type of divorce except for adultery. They did not mean That scripture in totality allows for no other grounds because they themselves believe that neglect were valid grounds. So the point is the debate was never over Exodus 21, 7 through 11. The debate was over the meaning at that time of indecency in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Now, Enstone Brewer points out this. He says, Jesus used the same terminology as the Shemites in the same context as the same in the same time period, and in a debate that involved both the School of Shammai and the School of, Sh- of Hillel, therefore, when Jesus used this same phrase in this debate, it would be extraordinary to conclude that he meant something completely different. In other words, just as the School of Shammai understood that except for fornication and decency did not exclude the moral grounds for divorce found in Exodus twenty-one seven through eleven. There's no contextual reason to believe Jesus would be excluding the moral grounds since he is using the same phraseology as the school of Shammai.
0: Well, and that makes perfect sense to me. It makes perfect sense because we recognize that Exodus um, 21, 7 through 11 gives us those grounds for neglect, those that those grounds of neglect were considered valid, biblical, scriptural, lawful grounds for divorce, is it is irrefutable it is a matter of historical record that jews from the time of moses all the way up to and past the time of jesus recognize those grounds of divorce as being valid whenever we contextualize jesus we have to recognize that jesus lived within that same context and as we said in this episode and as we have said before jesus did not violate that law jesus is shedding light on this law he's shedding light on the intent of the law He's teaching against that any cause divorce. If the Jews and the school of Shammai understood that that phrase, except for fornication, did not exclude those other grounds for divorce that are found in Exodus, they wouldn't have thought it excluded it when Jesus used the exact same or almost the exact same word, the exact same phrase. Jesus is using the same words they use. I mean, if I say four score and seven years ago, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? Abraham Lincoln, right? Four score yes. and seven years ago. That's the context. Immediately, that phrase is going to be a contextual pointer. So you know what I am talking about. You know, if I say, give me liberty or give me death, the first thing you're going to think of is Patrick Henry. If, you, if you're a student of history, you're going to be thinking about that. You know, if, if you hear one if by land, two if by sea, you're going to be thinking about the midnight ride and Paul Revere. If I say Boston Tea Party, you're not going to be thinking of a little tea house in Boston where you're getting together and pouring cups of tea and sipping tea and just enjoying each other's company. You're going to think about people dumping tea in the Boston Harbor.
1: Well, we understand that even, even today that there are certain flag words and words that have more meaning than what they simply just seem on the surface. If I say Black Lives Matter right now. No, no one is going to hear me and think, oh, Kevin, Kevin is just making a general statement that Black Lives Matter. There's a lot more to that statement than just me saying Black Lives Matter. So the same would be true when they would hear the phrase, any matter. That would mean Hillel. When they heard the phrase, except for indecency or except for fornication, which... I told you I would bring this back around, right? To the word fornication. Remember when I said that earlier? Here's yep. what's interesting. Why would Jesus use the word fornication instead of adultery? Well, I already went into great detail to explain why. But also, the idea of fornication fits more squarely with the idea of indecency, which was any type of sexual immorality. So Jesus is literally, and that's why in Stone Bruce says, Jesus is literally using their phrase, except for indecency. So when they came and asked, can we divorce for any reason, for just any reason, a.k.a. can we divorce for whatever reason we want? Jesus' response is not, no, and let me give you all the specific reasons why you can, though. That's not even under the radar. What Jesus is saying is, no, you can't. And then he gives, except for the indecency. He's answering their question by saying, Hillel is wrong. By stating that Shema's understanding of Deuteronomy 24 is correct, and so in doing that, if indeed he's agreeing with Shema by saying that you can't just divorce for any reason you want, and he's saying that adultery is the context of Deuteronomy 24, which it had been shortly after the death penalty was—I won't say completely revoked, but it was no longer in existence—shortly after the death of Moses that. Deuteronomy 24 passage was used to give this idea of disciplinary divorce. Jesus brought that up to say this is the meaning of Deuteronomy 24, but in doing that, he's not excluding the other universally accepted moral grounds found in the law of Moses because nobody even debated that. That wasn't on the radar. That wasn't the question. It didn't matter. Nobody cared about that. Everybody knew that. What they wanted to know is, can I divorce just for whatever reason I want? So instead, what Jesus was doing, he wasn't giving reasons why you can divorce. He was actually saying that you cannot divorce for just any reason. So this was more of a proverbial idiom, if you will, that the Jews would have understood as a way of refuting the any reason divorce. So Jesus is not giving some sort of in-depth, Exhaustive treatise on marriage yeah, and Yeah, he's not giving some, some treatise on marriage and divorce, and he's going through and saying, here's all your specific laws where you can and can't divorce. He's not doing that. He's not providing a list of moral exceptions because that's not the context. He is specifically addressing their question in the context of Deuteronomy 24 and is teaching against the any matter divorce by showing that has never been correct. This is powerful, man. And I know this is probably going to be new to a lot of people out there listening, this may be the first time you have ever heard of this. And I just challenge you to think about this, to study these passages and to ask us questions. We're going to have a whole Q&A session. So if you look at this and you think all this is just complete rubbish, that all of this is just ridiculous and we're just pulling this stuff from thin air, that's okay. Ask us questions because I can guarantee you, we're not trying to pull anything from thin air. We're trying to go back To the first century to understand what this meant
0: yeah and i I think at this point we can sum up what we wanted to get at because we wanted to talk about the innocent which we spent a good deal of time on man we've talked for a long time we've been at it over two hours and it's flown by it hasn't felt like two hours um but we talked about the innocent and then we got into the exception clause and that's where we spent the majority of our time and I guess we'll begin kind of at the end and summarizing with this last little bit. Jesus, in enumerating his teaching or in giving his teaching on this exception clause, he's not giving an exhaustive list for all time. He is specifically commenting on Deuteronomy 24. Contextually speaking, the grounds for divorce in biblical times are found in Deuteronomy 24 and Exodus 21, 7-11. through 11. Jesus is commenting on that, and then Paul takes that, which we'll talk about next week, and he elucidates that even further out, and he gives even more details on some of that because there are some other considerations that needed to be taken into account, and we'll talk about that later. But Deuteronomy 24 doesn't allow divorce for just any cause, any cause of indecency. It allows for divorce for adultery. Exodus 21, verses 7 through 11, allows for divorce for neglect,
1: well, and the, the, the rabbis actually debated even the aspect of neglect because they actually had it down, as Instone Brewer points out, emotional neglect as well as physical neglect. And so they actually broke those two down. And here's why people are so scared if we go this route. If we actually do what we see in Scripture and listen to what Jesus said— then now people are just going to start divorcing for any reason they want to. No, that's exactly what Jesus was saying not to do. Jesus was literally, that's yeah. exactly what we're saying. No, you can't just divorce for any reason. But are there not people out there who are genuinely neglected? Are there not people out there who their spouse left them? Are there not people out there who they're doing everything they can and their spouse is is, is not providing for their rights? They are are abusing them. They are not doing what they're supposed to be doing, whether it's emotional or physical. And so therefore, Exodus 21, 7 through 11 always allowed for that. That was never debated. Jesus certainly wasn't retracting that. And so here is who I believe the innocent are in a divorce. Number one, if your spouse committed sexual immorality and they cheated, they had sex with someone else, then that is a valid ground to divorce your spouse. That's a moral ground. Now, it doesn't mean you have to. It doesn't mean that you must, which was also a popular understanding during that time, that you had to do it. Jesus wasn't saying you had to do it, but it is a moral ground. It always had been, and it is a a moral ground for divorce. Even God tried and tried to work with Israel before he ended up divorcing both the northern and the southern kingdom. And we see that while it's a moral ground, we're not saying that that should be the first thing you do. Um, you need to, there, there needs to be prayer. There needs to be a lot of, of counseling. There needs to be attempts made to see, is this something that could be possibly continued? Or is this something that I need to go ahead and, and I need to divorce because of this? So that is moral grounds to divorce. I'm also not telling anybody that they have to wait a certain period of time or that, you know, if their, their spouse has to cheat on them a certain number of times before that happens. Um, and, you know, but I am saying that we're not saying is you you should just be waiting. Okay. Well, as soon as my spouse cheats on me, I'm going to divorce him. That's not in line with the heart of the gospel either, but it is a moral ground. If your spouse is out having sex with other people and they don't care and they're not going to try to change as a man who was in that position, who was married to a woman who was doing that very thing, I can guarantee you that I was doing everything I could to try to make the marriage work but if you're having a spouse who's out there having sex with other people, it's pretty understandable why you would want to have someone else to uh, to, to love you and marry you because that's obviously not taking place It's a so, terrible terrible position to be in so and clearly clearly that is is lawful and most people probably listening to this would agree with that where the new information comes in is if your spouse has divorced you and you were not doing anything sinful. And when I say sinful, I mean, we all are sinners, you know, we, we can all be better husbands. We can all be better wives. But I'm saying, if you weren't out cheating on your spouse, if you weren't the one out neglecting, if you were living up to your, your, your marriage vows and your spouse, for whatever reason, divorced you, you too have reason to remarry. Uh, there's nothing within Matthew 19.9 that would, or really any of the context of the Real teens of Jesus that would condemn that because that's not even in the context. Jesus isn't even dealing with that situation. Of course, you would be real able to, to marry for crying out loud. And so you would be innocent if if you have been abandoned, if you have been neglected, that can get into a lot of semantics. And it was semantics back then of what exactly that entails. I would encourage you to talk to your preacher, talk to your friends, talk to counselors, seek counsel before making any of those types of decisions. But if you are in an, a, an abusive marriage, get out now. Get out yeah. right now. Whoever is telling you to stay in that, I don't they may have the the they may think that they're doing the right thing by telling you that. Get out now. God does not want you in that. And any preacher who is telling you that is misguided. I can, I'm gonna say that very firmly. If any any man is telling a woman out there to stay in that marriage because that's what she agreed to and she's getting black eyes every night and she's getting beat up and neglected, my goodness, that's grounds. That is grounds for divorce, for crying out loud. That is more grounds, I would say, than even adultery was because nobody debated Exodus 21, 7 through 11. Nobody debated that. In fact, what's sad to me is the very thing no one even debated in, in the Old Testament is the very thing many preachers and pastors and Christians deny today. It just just blows my mind. I mean, I'm passionate about this because I've seen people put the law over people and it's not even the proper law. That's not even what the law teaches. Well, and what
0: is abuse, but excessively active neglect, you know, neglect is a sin of omission. Abuse is a sin of commission. If I'm not providing for the needs of my wife, whether those needs are physical needs of food, shelter, clothing, or their emotional needs, as in Stone Brewer got into You know, if I'm not providing her emotional needs, if she doesn't feel loved by me, that's one thing. But if I am actively seeking to cause physical harm to my wife, if I'm actively seeking to beat her, to abuse her or whatever else, that's neglect times a million. That is an act that that, if that isn't neglect, then what is, but I would even take it a step further. What if I'm giving my wife a spiritual black eye? what if i'm giving my wife an emotional black eye what if i'm running her down and calling her a cow what if i'm running her down and just telling her how worthless she is and how terrible she is what if i'm screaming in her face what if i never raise my hand to her one bit whatsoever but i forbid her from leaving the house i don't let her go see her family and that was actually something that the rabbis and stone brewer gets into in one of his books that's something that the rabbis would consider grounds for divorce if a man would not allow his wife to visit her family At least once a year, some rabbis would teach twice a year, but that was considered grounds for divorce. That was considered neglect. That was considered abuse. If I'm not allowing my wife to visit her family, if I'm not allowing her to spend money, if I'm not allowing her to talk to people, if I'm not letting her leave the house, if I'm not letting her um, do this or that or whatever else, all of those under the color of law are considered abuse. That is neglect. That is grounds for divorce. I believe that 100% with all my heart because it aligns with what the Bible teaches and it aligns with those principles we see enumerated within Scripture.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is something that I'm sure is going to be new to a lot of people. And people are going to take it and they're going to run with it and they're going to do exactly what they did with it in the Old Testament and say, we can do, we can divorce for any reason. And she's like, no, you can't divorce for any reason. But just because you can't divorce for any reason doesn't mean there aren't valid reasons to divorce. And and that's the other extreme, unfortunately, like Samuel Bakayoki and and John Piper, who are very Christocentric in their thinking and great Bible-believing, sincere men who still have come to these conclusions because they love the law so much and and I do too. I love the law, but we can't ignore the context of the law, and we certainly can't put law above people i mean that that is when you get to the point of saying that it's better to let a man die on the Sabbath than it is to heal him because it may be considered work. this is the exact same situations we're talking about here, absolutely, and I would say even more so because exodus twenty one seven through eleven is a case law specific example of allowing that and not just allowing it, but actually demanding the hard-hearted men to divorce if they can't provide. And in fact, in Stone and Brewer, I was listening to the podcast and they asked, they said, well, what about if someone is getting physically abused? He said, well, that wasn't even on the radar of Exodus 21, 7 through 11. That's so much further down the radar. Like that's just an assumption, you know, because if a man's not even able to provide for your your food and clothing during that time period, and that was a reason, how much more if he's beating the snot out of you for crying out loud i mean what yeah. is christians how far removed have we've gotten away from jesus and then we would say things like well she can she can divorce she just needs to remain unmarried oh okay well that that's great <laughs> you know that yeah. that you know now now you're just not going to get killed but now you're you're not going to be able to have a future why well because of a misunderstanding of matthew 532 which is once again it's not true. That's that's not within context. What I believe to be the truth that does not fit within the. And, and I've I've heard people they go, you know, you're telling me that if my spouse just happened to be a serial killer and an abuser, I'm just stuck. But if he was a sexual addict, then I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> because then I can divorce him and remarry. But I can't if he is a a serial killer who is also abusive to me and does all these other things. But unfortunately, I can't remarry. No, that's that is completely false. You can divorce, you can remarry based upon Exodus twenty-one seven through eleven. In the phrase "except for fornication," it affirms divorce for adultery. It does not negate divorce for neglect because that's not even within the same context.
0: Exactly. I mean, if. Brother, we could go on with this and on, but we
1: do need to get it wrapped up. (laughs) Here's what I would say. So this is why I believe all this makes sense. Number one, it fits the context, both biblically, historically, socially, and linguistically. Number two, it doesn't have Jesus contradicting himself by teaching a new law, which is the very thing he said he was not going to do in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. It doesn't have Jesus negating his own moral laws that protected the innocent. And finally, it fits within the nature of God and is consistent with his very just and fair character.
0: Yeah. To say that God isn't interested in fairness is to ignore what the Bible reveals to us about God and who he is and what he is interested in. And to me, it's this has been such a rewarding endeavor for me, and this has been such a rewarding study because this is one of the first dominoes that fell for me to begin to rethink and reconsider everything. And in doing so, I have discovered a God who, I mean, because we almost almost had a deistic position before where God is just kind of this aloof being, you know, in the heavens who, you know, he just, he gave us the Bible and was, like, all right, here, you figure it out. But it's, it's so wonderful to come to a realization that there is a merciful, faithful, just, and loving God who loves me and who cares enough for me. That he would send Jesus to die in my place, and if that doesn't demonstrate fairness, if that doesn't demonstrate love, if that doesn't demonstrate mercy, I don't know what does. But I, I think we've covered this ground exceptionally well. Do you have any other final thoughts before we get it wrapped up? I think we've pretty well beat the horse over and well, over. Well, I, I want people.
1: I, I want people to ask questions because man, there's just so much more we could even go into and cover. And so it's hard to know what people are thinking out there. So please let us know. Even if you disagree with us, that's fine. We just would like to know why and what questions you would like us to answer to give more information in regard to this. And so that's really what I would would encourage our audience, which we did get get a couple of questions yesterday. And so uh, of actually some case specific laws that they're dealing with right now. And so anything you want to Ask us. We're not claiming to be the authority, but we are claiming that we will address it to the best of our ability. And so anything that that you would like to hear on this, please let us know, because, as I said before, I'm sure this is a lot of new information. And to many people, it's going to be good news. Unfortunately, to some people, this is not going to be good news because they um, they probably well in my case, when I started hearing this, I didn't like it because it went against what I believed. even though it's more yeah. freeing, even though it's a it's a better news gospel uh, than what I had believed before, even though it's consistent with the Bible, it didn't coincide with what I had always believed. And so it affected me on a personal level and then I realized, well, this is silly. you know I need to accept what the Bible teaches regardless of my preconceived ideas. In fact, this is wonderful news. this is great news.
0: Yeah. And it is really good news. It provides a lot of freedom, but it is scary to reorient yourself and to examine new prospects and new propositions when they fly in the face of everything that you have known to be true about a particular topic. It's not easy. It's really not easy. So to that end, if you find yourself disagreeing vehemently, search the scriptures, look at what we have presented and don't accept it just because I said it. Don't accept it just because Kevin said it. We both read on this. We've studied on this a lot. If you disagree, think about why you do. Search the scriptures. See if what we're saying adds up. See if it lines up. And then if you have any points that you want to challenge us on, email us. Holler at us. We would love to hear from you. Even at an end, because iron sharpens iron. Um, To that end, we want to thank everyone for listening. Thank you all so much for your patience as we have sat here for almost two and a half hours going through this process. Give us a five-star review. Please share our podcast with your friends. Share it on social media um, with whatever avenue you choose to listen to it. Um, We are on Spotify now. If you subscribe to Spotify, you can listen to us there. Please share it far and wide. We would love to get the word out to as many people as we can, especially moving forward. We have a lot of really cool subjects we're going to discuss. We're already looking forward to the horizon or past the horizon of our series on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We're going to be getting into origins and what the Bible says and what science says and how those can be reconciled with one another about the age of the universe and evolution and all those things. We're going to be discussing um, the afterlife. We're going to be discussing the nature of hell an eternal conscious torment, eternal destruction and things like that. We're going to be talking about moral issues. You know, Can a Christian, should a Christian drink alcohol, for example? Those are just a few of the ideas that we have in mind for the future. If there's something you would like to hear discussed, email us, holler at us on Facebook, holler at us. If you have our phone numbers, you can text us. I'm not giving my phone number to all you people though. Don't want to hear from you all hours of the night. I love you all, but you're not getting my number. Uh, (laughs) In any case though, you can email us, reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you all so much for all of your listening, all of your patience and everything else. Have a wonderful day and God bless.